everybody. Welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. I was reminded the other day of the beginning of the letter of Jude, because it seems to me that certain features of his situation and the situation of the church uh, that Jude was writing to bear some stark resemblances to ours. Let me read a couple of verses to you, then explain what I mean. Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There you notice that Jude expresses the sense that there's something else he'd much rather be talking about than what he's got to talk about here. He'd really much rather be talking about and writing about our common salvation and the grace that we found in our Lord Jesus Christ and exploring the pages of the scriptures to dig up the riches of Christ that have been hidden there for ages and generations and have now been revealed to the church in Christ. He'd much rather be writing about that, but a problem has arisen which in Jude's day had even found its way into the church in which ungodly worldly philosophies, ways of thinking, which might have looked superficially Christian in orientation, but were nonetheless destructive and ruinous of the gospel. Ungodly ways of thinking, patterns of false teaching and false thinking had found their way from the surrounding culture, even into the church to, to which he was writing. And he found it necessary, therefore, to write, to urge them to contend for the faith that had been delivered to them. And that feature of Jude's situation, I want to suggest to you, well, certainly it chimes very uh, much with the kind of situation I find myself in as I'm speaking to you now. I'd much rather be continuing our little series of morning devotions on individual books of the Bible or exploring some passage of scripture or other. But there are worldly and ungodly philosophies, one particular cluster of ungodly and wrong ways of thinking that is extremely dominant in our culture, which gradually has started to find its way into our churches. And just as it's important for Jude on this occasion to step aside from what he'd much rather be focusing his attention on and to identify and address these wrong patterns of thought and ideas and wrong ways of thinking. So it's important for us on this occasion and for the next few devotions to spend a little bit of time thinking about what these ungodly, misplaced, mistaken patterns of thought are. I'm referring to a cluster of ideas which generally goes under the heading of what has come to be called critical theory. You may not have encountered critical theory in as many words, but you will have come across it if you've heard phrases at work or at your university like diversity, equity and inclusion. Or if you've ever been invited or required to go on a diversity awareness uh, workshop or uh, anti-racism training course. Uh, if you've ever witnessed a Black Lives Matter protest, the Black Lives Matter movement, which we talked about actually briefly in a previous couple of uh, few devotions a um, few months back, is actually uh, philosophically founded on this cluster of ideas, critical theory, a particular branch of critical theory called critical race theory. If you've ever heard the term identity politics, then you've come across critical theory. And these uh, cluster of terms serve to label a whole set of intellectual and actually practical phenomena which constitute a way of thinking about the world and about our society which is deeply, deeply misplaced and wrong, but which 
despite that, is finding its way into every corner of our society. It's finding out its way into workplaces. If you're going to university at the present time, you better batten down the hatches or be ready for the storm which is about to erupt as you begin your studies because you will find this cluster of ideas everywhere around you. And even in churches, many Christians have been attracted to the ideas which uh, lie within the orbit of this cluster of ideas. Uh, and they've been attracted to them because, for reasons we'll see uh, in subsequent devotions, they seem to be attractive and they seem to be addressing real problems in our world. And many Christians want rightly to see those problems addressed. And this seems like a, a right and wise path to take to do it. So we need to spend a little bit of time thinking about this cluster of uh, ideological or philosophical ideas which go under the heading of what has come to be known as critical theory. Now, before we begin, um, I'm going to just spend a couple of minutes in this devotion uh, just raising a couple of points by way of introduction, which I hope will orient us in the right kind of way to uh, addressing the questions we need to talk about here. The first thing we need to say is this is really complicated. Uh, personally, I've been wrestling with this stuff, trying to untangle the way in which these ideas operate for months, ever since uh, I spoke about the Black Lives Matter movement a few months back, and actually since before that, I've been reading stuff about it, trying to listen to people talk about it, trying to get a handle on what this movement or what these, this ideology is all about. It's complicated. I'm finding it complicated, certainly. Uh, maybe some of you have done some reading and you've managed to untangle some of it, but you yourselves will then know that it's not easy to understand. And therefore, we must resist simplistic conclusions. It's terribly, terribly easy to characterize a movement with whose conclusions we disagree in such a way that the people who actually hold to those views would not recognize what you're talking about. And they wouldn't feel well represented by what you're saying about them. Now, that's not going to help us here simply because Critical theory is actually a complicated beast. It's not easy to understand. And so I fear, probably just as Jude feared to a certain extent, that what I've got to say, like what he had to write, is not terribly pastorally warming and encouraging and at times somewhat complex. I'm kind of sorry about that, but I'm sort of not sorry because as Jude shows us, sometimes we just have to wrestle with these difficult ideas in order to do justice to the people with whom we want to wrestle and with the ideas that we want to wrestle in order to straighten out the misunderstandings here. Now, that's all the more important because the aim of thinking about these issues is not simply that we would be forewarned and forearmed about them. As I mentioned already, there are people in our churches who perhaps in some cases for understandable reasons have been attracted to branches of critical theory and some of the, the ideological uh, currents that undergird it or form a part of it. It's not that critical theory is right. It's rather, in my view, that it seems to be offering what looks superficially like a, a reasonable prescription for a problem that looks 
at least on the surface, to be a genuine problem in our society. And if a doctor comes along and tells you that he knows you've got a pain in your right ankle and here's a pill that can fix it, and look, here's 10 other people who I gave the pill to and their pain in their right ankle has gone away, it's understandable why some people would take the pill. In the same way, I think it's understandable, even though it's unfortunate, that many in our churches have, so to speak, imbibed this ideology. It's understandable that they should have done so. And it's not going to help us to talk with each other across what is actually an increasing and growing divide. It's not going to help us to talk with each other if we're not going the extra mile to really try and understand what it is that advocates of critical theory are trying to say. To put it another way, my aim by the time we've worked through this material is that somebody who is a, a Christian professing believer who has been strongly influenced and swayed by various branches of critical theory would be happy with our characterization of what he or she believes. They feel fairly represented by uh, the picture that we have drawn so that they know that we're not criticizing a straw man. We want to steel man their position, not straw man it. And this leads on to a final observation, which is very, very important to recognize. There are some people, uh, leaders of the movement, to the extent that this movement has leaders, who are card-carrying Marxists, for example, card-carrying communists, out-and-out atheists, set on destroying the nuclear family, set on undermining much of the awareness of the history that has made our country and other Western countries great in many respects. There are people who are out to destroy the foundations of Western civilization. But, and it's absolutely critical to understand this, not everybody who professes to support or to have been attracted to some strands of critical theory, or the Black Lives Matter movement, or any one of the other numerous movements that are part of this cluster of ideologies, not everybody who so to speak, would line up alongside them, is a card-carrying Marxist, or is an atheist, or is out to destroy and undermine the foundations of the society that God has bequeathed in his goodness and his providence to us. Many people, in fact, are attracted to the claim that there genuinely are problems in our society, which there are, and look, here are some solutions which don't appear to have been tried. And surely, if you care about the problems, wouldn't you be interested in exploring these solutions? It's not, in other words, that everybody who is sympathetic to critical theory is a bad actor. Some are, but some are genuinely concerned to address the issues that critical theory seeks to address. And therefore, in responding to the movement, we as Christians need to show how the gospel provides a more clear-headed, more articulate, more, more full-orbed solution to those problems. It's no good to dismiss the problems that have been identified as though they didn't matter. If they are genuine problems in our society that critical theory seeks to address, then we must show how the gospel, and we must show in detail and with specifics, how the gospel addresses them. Okay, so I've talked too long already and quite vaguely up to this point, but I hope I've set the scene a little bit. Uh, you're probably now wondering, well, what on earth is it 
that critical theory and identity politics and diversity, equity and inclusion and anti-racism awareness training and so on. What, what do all these words mean and what is the shape to this ideology and how should we try and grapple with it and uh, put it together in our minds? That's what we're going to start doing tomorrow when we introduce the basic ideas before we explore uh, each of them in a bit more detail. Okay, so we began yesterday thinking about critical theory, and today what I want to do is to try and sketch in broad terms the landscape of this ideology. It's important to understand that although it's an inconsistent and incoherent ideology in the sense that there are tensions within it and inconsistencies, and it's certainly wrong and untrue, nonetheless it's a set of ideas that come as a package. And so what happens typically when people encounter this ideology for the first time, what they find is they're swamped by an array of terms that they've never heard before, or that they might have heard before, but they're pretty sure that they meant something different last time they saw them. This is exactly the kind of thing that's going to happen to you young people when you arrive at college or at university. People are going to start talking about diversity awareness training and anti-bias training and unconscious racism awareness seminars and so on. And you're thinking, well, I think I know what these things mean, but what are they? What's the underlying big picture that makes sense of all these things to the extent that you can make sense of them and understand what the proponents of this ideology believe. That's what I want to articulate for you today. So here goes. Critical theory is a term which has been used in a variety of ways by philosophers of various stripes since about the 1930s. But in the modern context, critical theory refers to a way of analysing relationships between people by viewing and indeed defining everybody on the grounds of their membership of a class or multiple classes. For example, race, gender, sexuality, disability, wealth, and so on. These classes can be multiplied indefinitely. Immigration status, weight, religion, uh, class, uh, in the sense of social class, family background, education level, and so on. And within each of these categories, some people are inherently oppressed, while other people are inherently oppressors. So think of the class of race, for example. White people are inherently oppressors of black people. And black people are inherently oppressed by white people. Think of the category of sex. Men are inherently oppressive towards women. And women inherently oppressed by men. That's how critical theory views people. And those classes, the categories that we belong to, define who we are. If I'm a black woman and somebody else is a white man, it's easier to understand it the other way around, isn't it? If I'm a white man talking to a black woman, then I'm the oppressor and she's the oppressed twice. And that's inescapable. It's as simple as that. Now, people sometimes speak of different strands of critical theory, referring to how the theory is said to apply to, let's say, race or sex or something else. So people might speak of critical race theory, speaking of how blackness and whiteness and other racial backgrounds interact, or critical gender theory, uh, and so on and so forth. But basically, critical theory is the overarching um, uh a term to describe all these ways of uh, viewing people 
and defining them by which class they belong to. Wokeness, or being woke, is another phrase you may have heard, and that refers simply to being awakened to, or woke to, the claims of critical theory. So if you're not woke, you don't get it, you don't understand. If you are woke, you understand what critical theory is and what it claims. Now, critical theory generates identity politics, which, roughly speaking, is the insistence on acting in the world and defining your own political and social orientation and commitments on the basis of these group identities. And you see some of that, actually, you've seen it in the, in the political landscape re recently with some political candidates, for example, saying, um, if you don't vote for this person, you're not black. And what that reflects is the view that your political allegiance ought to be defined by your membership or non-membership of that particular class of people. And all that matters about a person is straight white male or uh, black woman or whatever group of classes you might be a member of. Now, that also uh, raises the issue of what's come to be known as intersectionality, which you've, we've hinted at this already, that uh, we are all members, so this set of theories claims, of multiple classes. And the uh, oppression and oppressedness of all the classes add together. So interse intersectionality theory will identify me not just as white, not just as male, but as a white, male, straight, British, middle class, or whatever class they might define me as. And that sum of my identities constitutes who I am. Now then, what you can see so far then is that everyone is put in lots and lots of different boxes at once. And within those different boxes, some people experience what is called privilege. I'm a straight white male. That means I'm privileged at least three times because straight, white and male are on the oppressor side of those, the three groups that they refer to. And the most common form of the expression, white privilege, refers to the social advantages that white people are claimed to have by virtue of being white. But you could have male privilege, you could have straight privilege, you could have any other kind of privilege, theoretically. And if you're in one of those privileged categories, you might be called upon to, quote, check your privilege. What that means is um, you're being uh, required to recognize that the views that you have or the attitudes that you're expressing, you only have those because you're a member of those oppressor privileged classes, uh, and you're only using those views to cement your positions of power. Uh, and that's an illegitimate move, it's claimed. And what you ought to do is just sit down and be quiet. Check your privilege means you don't get to contribute to the conversation. And so, for example, if, if someone like me said, as I have done, that I don't think there's actually, on statistical grounds, an epidemic of uh, police shootings uh, by white police officers of black men in the United States. If I said that, I might be called upon to check my privilege on the grounds that the reason I say that is simply that I'm a white male and don't feel personally threatened by the white police officers who it's claimed are going around shooting white uh, black men um, at uh, a rate that they ought not to be and for reasons that they ought not to. Now, what if I continue to insist that genuinely I'm not actually motivated by those racist attitudes that are being imputed to me. What's going to happen then? Well, the next thing is I'm going to be accused of unconscious bias. Unconscious bias refers to the claim that, well, I'm not deliberately racist, 
but I'm unconsciously racist. I have all kinds of unconscious attitudes and stereotypes that affect my actions in, way that, in ways that I myself don't even realise. I might not be consciously racist, but I'm unconsciously racist. Similarly, talking about male and female, I might not be, unco- might not be consciously sexist, but I might be accused of being unconsciously sexist. And so unconscious bias refers to the attitudes that we don't even realize we have. And of course, what that, what that means then is quite hard to have a conversation with somebody. If, if you're going to be accused of having biases that you're pretty sure you don't have, even if you insist you don't have them. And if I continue to protest, the next thing I'll probably be accused of is fragility, particularly white fragility. The most common form of fragility that you'll find, um, articulated in, uh, uh, writing and in conversations uh, in the last year or two. The point there that's being made is, well, my, continua- my continued protest that, no, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, honestly, I don't think I'm racist, is evidence of the fact that I'm fragile as a white person. And the response of white fragility is the response of discomfort and anxiety and defensiveness and anger and guilt and argumentativeness, which people will claim that I'm expressing by saying, I genuinely don't think I'm acting in a racist way. White fragility, it's claimed, is the result of the refusal to acknowledge that my being white confers those social benefits and necessarily entails racism on my part. Now, if there's any significant difference between outcomes of these different groups in any domain, those outcomes will be attributed to bias, sexism if it's a male-female difference, racism if it's, say, a black-white difference. So to give an example, if there's any significant difference in outcomes in admission statistics to a prestigious university, let's suppose that a, a disproportionate number of white people get admitted and a disproportionately low number of black people get admitted, that will be attributed to racism. And if no racist attitudes can be found and no racist procedures can be identified, then it will still be attributed to racism. But the racism it will be attributed to will be called systemic racism. Systemic racism is the racism that critical theory claims must be there to account for any differences between outcomes between uh, people of different races, because the only thing that can account for those differences is bias, racism of some kind or another. It's been called by some commentators a racism of the gaps. The idea there is that anything that you can't explain is, well, that's racism. And it must be racism because racism is the only thing that can explain differences between races and therefore um, differences in outcomes between races, pardon me. Um, and therefore, uh, we will label it systemic racism because that's the only explanation we're allowing. So that's a sketch of the kind of social... Uh, a diagnosis that critical theory offers. Now, what is the solution to this malaise that it's alleged we're suffering? The only solution it is claimed is social justice. Social justice, on the one hand, first glance, it looks fairly innocuous, doesn't it? Who wants social injustice? But like many terms in um, critical theory, critical theory's vocabulary, this term has been redefined to include a whole range of processes and actions which, once you scratch a bit below the surface, turn out to be more malevolent than you might realise. How do we pursue social justice? Well, there are a number of different ways. First, what you might call the Holy Trinity 
of social justice by pursuing equality, diversity and inclusivity. Sometimes two more terms are added to that list, accountability and stewardship. But diversity, equity and inclusion, um, or uh, equality, diversity, inclusivity, um, the terms are, are used in a somewhat elastic way, but um, those are the terms which are used to describe the first plank in responding to these claimed injustices. Now, we need to look at those terms in more detail, which we'll do in a future video, because on the one hand, like with so much of critical theory, it all looks innocuous. Who wants inequality? Who wants lack of inclusion or lack of inclusivity? Well, nobody, surely. But the way that critical theory defines those terms is deeply problematic and deeply mistaken. So we need to look at that in more detail. How do you achieve those aims? Answer is by affirmative action. Affirmative action is a term that's been around for a while now. Basically, it involves quotas for various supposedly disadvantaged groups. So, for example, um, the state of California recently has, uh, I think, not quite established, but is, is moving towards establishing legislation requiring uh, the composition of boards of certain companies above a certain size to contain certain quotas of gender and sexuality and so on. That's affirmative action, an attempt to remedy these imbalances which is alleged are caused by systemic bias. Another step towards social justice, reparations. If affirmative action is fixing things that are going wrong in the present, reparations are an attempt to fix things that have gone wrong in the past. And reparations is another term that's been uh, around for a while now. Uh, the obvious example, which is all over the place in the American politics at the moment and the social life at the moment, if black people have suffered historic disadvantages because of the colour of their skin, which they certainly have, if you go back far enough, then black people today must be compensated. They must be paid reparations of some kind to compensate them and to right the past wrongs that have been uh, committed against them. And that's obviously the case, particularly in the context of slavery, but it's possible to imagine any number of other contexts in which reparations ought to be paid, according to critical theory. It's not enough to be against racism or to be not racist for critical theory. You need to be actively anti-racist. And anti-racism is another term which has gained prominence in recent uh, months and years. In effect, what it means is being a, uh, an anti-racist activist in the terms defined by the most vocal campaigners for critical theoretic social justice. So if I say, let's take an example, I genuinely think I don't have any racist attitudes. And honestly, I think I'm pretty sure that's true. I've been a pastor of a church here in London for over a decade in which we've had something approaching 40 or 50 different nationalities. I'm pretty sure I've not uh, discriminated consciously against anybody at all on the grounds of their background or nationality or race or anything. Uh, so as, as, as much as I can be sure, I, I think that's the case. Well, that's not enough. Because what anti-racism says, even if it were true that I'm not actually racist, to be anti-racist means to engage in the activism prescribed by the social justice warriors. The most glaring example of that recently was the um, video we looked at a few months back. If you remember the restaurant goers in Washington, D.C., who were being harangued by the crowd of protesters and being, being required to raise the fist in support of Black Lives Matter. And if they refused to raise the fist, they were denounced as racist because it's either racist or anti-racist. And this, it's claimed, 
is anti-racist. Never mind that one of the ladies sitting at the table who refused to raise her fist had been on a previous BLM protest herself. That's not enough. You need to be an activist in these terms. That's anti-racism. And all of this, all of this stuff is articulated and uh, taught in a never-ending and ever-growing stream of seminars and discussions and roundtables, unconscious bias awareness training and anti-racism and diversity training and diversity inclusion workshops and social justice seminars. All these things which are coming your way if you work for a company of more than a couple of hundred people who isn't, which isn't run by somebody who's extremely switched on and they're certainly coming your way if you're headed to university or college anytime soon. So that is just my attempt to articulate the landscape. I'm sorry, I can see how far I've gone over the normal time that I'd like to take for these devotions, but I hope it's been useful for those of you who are still with me. Um, uh, what we're going to do in the next few videos is we're going to spend a bit more time unpacking some of these terms and critiquing them and analysing them in detail because there's plenty of critiquing to be done. And we'll also look at some of the ideological underpinnings and the historical background to this movement, try and figure out where it's come from, try and understand what to make of it uh, so we're able to respond intelligently and thoughtfully with integrity and truthfulness. Okay, so we've been thinking about critical theory, and in the previous devotion, we took a fairly long look at, at the, the overall landscape, just to get a sense of the overall shape of this ideology. And you will have seen there's a fair amount of complexity there, and some of that we're going to get into in the coming days, and we'll analyse that a bit more, and then offer some uh, biblical critique of where the movement is coming from. But before we get to any of that, you will perhaps already have seen that there is one fundamental error to the whole of critical theory. In fact, it's it's not really enough to call it an error. It's actually a, a totally dehumanizing outrage at the heart of the whole ideology. And we need to highlight this first, because only if we can get this clear in our minds will it make any sense to proceed. The outrage at the heart of critical theory is this insistence on defining people by their group identity. You remember I said that's right at the heart of what critical theory says. The thing that matters about you, according to critical theory, is whether you are black or white, male or female, gay or straight, an immigrant or a native born, whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor. These are the things that define you. And those are the things that should define how you interact in the world. That is a catastrophic dehumanizing error at the heart of the the whole philosophy. I mean, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's frankly offensive, besides just being misleading and ignorant. And I want to highlight some of the ways in which this, the ignorance and the foolishness at the heart of critical theory becomes apparent. The first and most obvious thing to say is that we are all members of one race. We are all fundamentally unified. This is what the scriptures teach. We are members of the human race. We are all human beings because God made us this way. And this unity that we have as created beings absolutely transcends any differences between us. Now, of course, there are differences between us. 
every single person is wonderfully and gloriously different. We have all kinds of created differences in height and nose shape and tone of voice and temperament and food likes and dislikes and hair color and all kind. Everything about us is different. Many of these are inherited differences like uh, to a certain extent, things like height, uh, skin pigment, and so on. But these inherited differences are incidental to the core of our shared humanity. It's our shared humanity that makes us one, and that's something we all have. And the insistence on chopping up the human race as a whole into these different classes and teaching them to be at enmity with each other is frankly outrageous. It's wrong and it ought to be challenged right at the outset. In fact, the fundamental problems of our society, many of them, uh, in terms of the way that people relate to each other, arise precisely because people insist on defining themselves as members of some group or other. Racism is the classic example of this. Racism exists precisely because people view themselves as fundamentally white as opposed to, let's say, fundamentally black. And then they define themselves in those terms and they define others in those terms. This is what critical theory does. Critical theory seeks self-consciously to perpetuate the framework that has given rise to many of society's problems. And it must be challenged absolutely at its, right at its foundations, under its foundations, if you like, as Christians, with the insistence that we are not fundamentally members of one subgroup or another, but we are fundamentally human beings with a shared common humanity, a gift from God. But that's just the first problem with this insistence on defining us by group identity. The problems go deeper. The group identity doctrine totally ignores the many, many differences between different people within each of those groups. I mean, just think about it for a second. To call somebody white or black, I mean, what does that even mean? Just look at my skin colour. Look at the skin colour of 10 or 100 other people who are white. Look at a group of black people. Look at a group of Asian people. And you, just, you notice that they're different from each other. African, what does that even mean? English, what does that even mean? Texan, what does it even mean? Okay, it points to certain shared characteristics. True, English people tend to speak a bit more like me than they do like, let's say, people from Texas. But the, the tendency to categorize people and define them by those group identities totally ignores the differences between us. Let me con, uh, con, suggest for your consideration one illustration that's obvious to me around here, and you can play a parallel story for yourself. Um, imagine if I were to walk around Southgate and I get together all the people I can find who are white, British, born in London, 40-something married men. And I line them all up in a, in a great long row, about a couple of thousand of them. What would, what, what would they look like? They'd all look totally different from each other. Critical theory would have them all identified as one group with that shared defining characteristic of white, British, male, 40-something, uh, married, living in London, as though that defined all that they are or perhaps some other set of characteristics, but that doesn't define all that they are because they're manifestly different from each other. 
Uh, more seriously, I've seen this uh, here in the congregation uh, manual in London over the last 10 years. We have had many, many different people from Africa. Now, what's critical theory going to suggest we do? Well, critical theory says that they're all African or perhaps they're black. Well, I can tell you that people from Ghana, Zambia, Burundi, Nigeria, Kenya, to name but five of the many different African groups that we've um, had as part of the congregation, African people we've had as part of the congregation here at Emmanuel, they all have a different shared, a different set of cultural inheritances from their countries. And then if you go to one of those countries, you go to Burundi or you go to Ghana or something, then you find that there are different subcultures within that, just as there are different subcultures within the place where you live. There's no two people in the world who are the same just because they happen to belong to the same group that critical theory in all its foolish wisdom decides is definitive. And people should not be treated as the same because they belong to those subgroups. In short, what we have that's the same is our humanness. And then within that, there are many, many created differences, some of which are inherited, some of which are not. And they are to be, to the extent they're not sinful, celebrated and rejoiced in and a cause of thanksgiving to God. Next problem. The categories that critical theory actually majors on tend to be constructed in a deeply tendentious way. What I mean is this. The, the particular categories within the groups, let's say race, again, as critical theory defines it, which are highlighted, are chosen very selectively. So black and white. But Asian people, for example, who in the United Kingdom in the 20th century have suffered a great deal of discrimination from people who would rather think of groups and discriminate on the basis of groups. Asian people have suffered a great deal of discrimination here in the UK and elsewhere in the world in the 20th century because of their skin pigmentation and their background. Well, critical theory increasingly defines Asian people as white oppressors failing completely to recognise, to the extent that it should be recognised, the fact that they've actually historically been victims of racial hatred. Same with Jewish people. Jewish people, as a category, have suffered greatly at the hands of people who think the best way to view humanity is to divide them up into groups and then get one particular group and treat them badly because they share that group identity. But critical theory says nothing in practice about the significance of that identity. In other words, not only does it make the mistake of defining people by group identities, but it selectively and tendentiously chooses the group identities which matter and ignore others. Finally, critical theory conflates different kinds of group identity and treats them as though they're the same kind of identity. Let me explain that a little bit more. Consider the following three uh, kinds of group difference. Black and white, male and female, straight and gay. Consider those three kinds of group difference. Well, critical theory suggests we should treat them all the same. They're all groups which define people within society within which there are oppressor and oppressed groups. But actually those groupings, the polarities are not the same. Some of them are relevant in certain ways, like male-female. 
but they're not relevant in every way. We ought not to discriminate between male and female in every context. Nonetheless, maleness and femaleness is a created gift from God. It ought to be celebrated in certain ways, in many ways, sorry. And uh, there are some senses in which men and women ought to be treated differently that respects the created differences between them. Most obviously, the different roles that men and women play in marriage when it comes to their relationship as husband and wife and in relation to their children. There's a difference which in many contexts shouldn't matter at all, but in some contexts should matter. Then take another difference, uh, another set of polarities, uh, gay and straight. Well, that difference relates not to some innate God-given characteristic, but rather to a lifestyle choice. And so clearly it's a lifestyle choice, uh, which according to scripture has moral overtones to it, moral implications to it. And therefore the difference between gay and straight ought not to be treated in quite the same way as the difference between male and female. Uh, gay people, for example, let's just talk about uh, gay people for a moment to the extent that we want to identify them as a, as a group who define themselves in that way, ought to be welcomed within a church and prized and cared for and challenged to repent of the lifestyle they've chosen to adopt. Because a gay lifestyle is inconsistent with faith in Christ. It's not a repentant lifestyle. Now, that's an issue which a great deal of discussion has taken place on in the last couple of years and a great deal of confusion has arisen. It's important to distinguish between the gay-straight difference and the male-female difference. Gay-straight carries significant moral connotations and those need to be addressed at the level of people being called to repentance from certain lifestyles which the Bible identifies clearly as sinful. So, male-female, gay-straight, black-white totally irrelevant in absolutely every conceivable context and it ought not to be made relevant in any context but critical theory would say all those three kinds of difference ought to be treated in the same way and that's just wrong so at every level critical theory totally fails in its insistence on defining people according to their membership of those particular groups. Okay, let's keep thinking a little bit about critical theory. And in this video and the next one, what I want to do is to sketch out some of the significant historical background to this movement. We're obviously not going to be able to go into everything in detail, but I do want to say a few things in this video, just about three significant historical eras or moments bringing us up to the mid 20th century. And in the next video, from there up to the present, Lord willing. Uh, this will be sufficient for us just to get a sense of where things are coming from. If you're interested in reading more, it will also be a sort of contents page for you to know where to explore next. And indeed, some of the uh, movements that we'll look at are sufficiently well known that you'll already have a reasonable idea of what they are and how they will have contributed to where we are today. So without further ado, three significant historical eras which led to intellectual developments that have shaped modern critical theory. The first, I guess, can best be described as the, the rise and prominence of uh, colonialism and the slave trade, especially the transatlantic slave trade in the 16th through to the 18th and early 19th centuries. Slavery and, in different ways, colonialism have obviously been features of almost every society down the ages, with actually 
the exception in most parts of our, the modern West. But uh, in the early 16th century, uh, the proponents of the slave trade came upon a new and apparently persuasive justification, it seemed, to their twisted minds to justify the claims that they were making about the superiority of some races over others. And it all comes down to a new understanding of heredity and inheritance within human groups that arose in the 16th century. Prior to that, there was very limited awareness of and understanding of inheritance as a concept. People thought that one's environment shaped one's characteristics. So if you had dark skin, it was because you lived in a very hot part of the world and that's what made you, that's what permanently tanned your skin dark. Whereas if you lived in Northern Europe or Britain or Scandinavia or something, that's why you'd have pale skin because there was less sun there. And people thought the same thing about other traits as well. There was no sense in which people understood that traits were passed on. Certainly no idea of how that happened. Now, with the turn of the 16th century, people still didn't understand how it happened in the sense of having any idea about modern genetics. Nobody knew anything about modern genetics. Nobody knew anything practically about biology in the modern sense, much less biochemistry. But people did begin to surmise in a proto-scientific kind of way that particular traits were passed on from parents to their offspring within the broader human race generally. Now, what that meant was, for the first time, people had what they felt wrongly, as we'll see in a second, but what they felt wrongly was some kind of quasi or proto-scientific justification for thinking of human beings as belonging to different groups, biologically defined in that kind of crude pre-biological sense. Think about it like this. If previously uh, the colour of your skin was simply a product of your environment, then it was just an accident of where you happened to be born. But if it was passed on from parents to their children, as people in the early 16th century began to imagine, and to rightly, as, as it happened, so that they didn't understand why, and they did all kinds of terrible things with that understanding. But if that's how it's passed on, people felt then that what they had was a justification for thinking of this group of people as fundamentally different from this other group of people, particularly because, of course, the colour of one's skin is such a, a dominant um, characteristic. Now, of course, there's all kinds of things wrong with that kind of thinking. The colour of your skin is just one characteristic among many, many, many characteristics. And those, uh, those uh, people in the 16th century who began to think in this way absolutized that feature at the expense of the many, many, many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other significant features, which, as we talked about previously, differ between all of us. But what happened was that those who wanted to find a justification for slavery and for colonialism could say, well, there are some grounds for us enslaving them. And it was always, of course, us enslaving them, never them enslaving us, because we're different in this fundamental way. In other words, it was the beginnings of thinking about defined subclasses within the human race, and thinking about those as significant 
in terms of the kind of people that we are. Now you can easily see how this has fed into modern critical theory. In fact, it's ironic, at least seems ironic to me, that you'd expect somebody who was concerned to abolish racism from the face of the earth to be forthright in opposing this idea of human beings being divided into and defined by membership of different classes. That's what we were talking about in a previous video, wasn't it? Where we were saying the the fundamental thing that we must attack about critical theory is its insistence on defining people by their membership of certain classes. But critical theory actually embraces this. And what it does with it is to turn that into a narrative in which one group has the right, so to speak, to claim uh, some kind of moral superiority over another. That leads us to the second significant historical moment, which forms part of the background to critical theory. The rise of Marxism in the 19th, and of course its continuation in the 20th century. Marxism teaches people to think of themselves in groups which are defined by class or by economics. And of course, to the people at the bottom, so to speak, in the lower classes, the proletariat, as some Marxist thinkers and critics of Marxism have called them, the proletariat, Marxism taught them to think of themselves as an oppressed class, oppressed economically, and urged them to rise up against the bourgeois oppressors. Now, again, this is a feature of uh, uh, the intellectual landscape, which has found its way into critical theory in ways that we'll talk about in a bit more detail in future videos. But just suffice it to say that uh, you notice, by way of criticism, that is, you notice that in some of the sharpest critiques of Marxism, for example, from people like George Orwell, what they frequently observed is that the people who call upon the oppressed lower classes to rise up against their bourgeois overlords, those people who call on them to do that always somehow find themselves in a position of economic and social superiority. Think of the picture of um, Animal Farm, George Orwell's fascinating novel in which um, the pigs end up eating with the men, having called upon all the other animals to rise up against their man oppressors. And it wouldn't be surprising, would it, to discover that if that structure of thought has found its way from Marxism into critical theory, that the people calling on the oppressed folks to rise up will somehow find themselves in positions of being the oppressor, in fact, even while they continue to deny it. So Marxism, the second significant historical moment that we need to be aware of. The third moment is the rise of the so-called Frankfurt School, which is a school of critical social theory connected with the University of Frankfurt in the 1930s, 1940s, Frankfurt, Germany. And really, this is where things do get somewhat complicated. But to simplify right down to the most basic point, one of the fundamental things that the Frankfurt School taught was the application of Marxist categories of oppressed oppressor narrative 
to categories other than class and economics. If Marx says the oppressed are those who are at the bottom economically or in lower social classes, the Frankfurt School says, well, what if culture is a more significant aspect of human life than economics or class? What if uh, race is a more significant aspect of human life than culture or class? And so the Frankfurt School, if you like, paved the way, uh, created the intellectual structure for the application of Marxist oppressed oppressor narratives in a new framework. It wouldn't be possible now only to call for the uh, for, for the poor or the lower classes to be called upon to rise up against their putative oppressors. But people in other allegedly marginalized and oppressed social groups to be called upon to rise up against their oppressors. And that is the first glimpse, if you know anything about critical theory, which you all know a little bit uh, now, um, after the previous couple of videos and if you've read things and so on, you can start to see now quite distinct echoes of the uh, contemporary critical theory narrative in which the oppressed, let's say, female uh, uh, class or the oppressed, let's say, black class is called upon to rise up against their male or white oppressors. So 16th to 18th or 19th century uh, slave trade and colonialism buttressed by a new understanding, which as it turns out was almost entirely wrong, but a new understanding of how traits are passed on from, one, um, from parents to children and therefore paved the way for understanding the division of people into classes. Then second, the Marxist oppressed oppressor narrative. And then third, the Frankfurt School's application of that oppressed oppressor narrative to other spheres besides social class and economics. That's just a sketch. And if you know anything about those three movements, you'll recognize it as a sketch, but hopefully you'll recognize it as one that's accurate as far as it goes. And you can already see how that core, that sets the stage for uh, some of the characteristics of critical theory. We'll start to bridge the gap from there, middle of the 20th century up to the present, Lord willing. Okay, so we're thinking about critical theory, and this is the second part of our historical overview, mapping some of the key steps in the development of this ideology. And in the previous video, you remember, we looked at the significance of the emergence of the idea of heredity and the impact that that had on the uh, putative justifications for the slave trade and colonialism in the twisted minds of people who attempted to argue for that in the 16th through the 18th or 19th centuries. We looked also uh, to the rise of Marxism and the Frankfurt School of Philosophy in Frankfurt, Germany in the 1920s and 30s. That takes us up to about the early middle part of the 20th century. What I want to do today is to just point you to three further thinkers who take us from that point up to the present day. And as we do so, we're really just going to be spelling out what they said, not going into great detail in terms of critique. We'll turn to the critique of these thinkers and some of their ideas in the next video as we start to try and analyse this worldview in a little more detail. So without further ado, three thinkers whose uh, writings and whose work and whose thought have formed significant steps on the road towards what we now recognise as critical theory. Number one, Derek Bell. 
Derek Bell was a legal scholar. He was a professor at Harvard Law School in the 70s and 80s. He was the first black professor at Harvard Law School, as it happens. And he his interest was in the way in which uh, the identity groups, particularly racial groups, black and white, interact with legal structures and other social structures. Um, and he made a couple of claims about how uh, the law works in human societies and particularly how uh, different races interact with each other in legal contexts. In particular, number one, he claimed that racism is not something strange and unusual but is the ordinary state of affairs in human society. It's just the way things are. Human societies, he said, are racist. That doesn't mean it's okay that they're racist. It just means it's inescapable that human societies are racist. So if you're looking at a, 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 a legal decision or any other social interaction, your question should not be, Derek Bell says, is there racism going on here? The question should be, where is the racism here? There will be racism here, he says. The question is, where is it? A second uh, pillar of his thought, which he bequeathed to future generations of uh, thinkers in the critical theory school, was the idea of what has become known among critical theorists as interest convergence. This is the idea that a dominant group for Derek Bell, the dominant group would be white people, only act in favour of oppressed groups, for Derek Bell, that would be black people, when their interests converge. Derek Bell, to put it another way, would say that if a group of white people in power did something which seemed to favour black people who they were oppressing, they didn't do that because they cared for black people. They only did it out of cynical self-interest because it just happened that by doing these oppressed people a favour, they were actually helping themselves. Derek Bell analysed the Brown versus Board of Education decision in the middle of the 20th century and claimed that this was an example of this. He said that actually what happened as a result of the Brown versus Board of Education decision is that black people in many contexts suffered greatly. And the only reason why white people uh, uh, who were in control of the legal process at the time forged ahead with this decision was because it was in their interests to do so. So a couple of contributions from Derek Bell. And if you know anything about critical theory, you'll already see the um, echoes of his thought uh, in the ideas among, that are common among modern critical theorists. We'll come to that, as I said, in the next video. A second significant figure was the postmodernist philosopher Michel Foucault. Michel Foucault uh, wrote a great deal about the relationship between knowledge on the one hand and the exercise of political or social power on the other. Foucault's big idea uh, on this theme is well known, uh, but just to remind you if you've come across it before or to uh, alert you to it if you've not, Foucault believed that claims about knowledge in relation to any domain, science, maths, history, geography, social structures, claims about knowledge are actually disguised political claims. That is, they are power plays in disguise. If somebody claims to be informing you about something, what they're actually trying to do is to manipulate the situation, to exercise power, and normally, of course, in their own interests. Knowledge is power in that sense. 
To put it another way, the processes by which we come to know things, in technical terms, epistemological processes, are socially constructed. Society determines what processes of thought will allow you to arrive at conclusions, what methodologies are allowed, and it does so uh, in order to favour the people in positions of power in that society. So uh, a caricatured example for you would be the thought that, well, science as a methodology is uh, a, uh, a way of arriving at knowledge which serves to cement the influence of scientists as a group and therefore it doesn't actually have any privileged claim on the truth and when people make scientific claims they're not really interested in what the truth is they're simply trying to assert their own power and of course then scientists will get in, into cahoots with uh, politicians and big business and so on and the biases of the group or the groups in question will affect the claims that they're making and so in the, in the context of science, the point would be not just that uh, individual scientists making truth claims now, but historically, science is a, as a pursuit was invented by white Western men, Foucault would point out. And therefore, the biases of white Western men are just kind of fundamentally hardwired, baked into the system. Science, however you try to do it, if you are doing science, you're going to be forwarding the interests of the white Western men who uh, uh, devised the methodologies by which the scientific um, uh, enterprise is carried out. So then suppose somebody comes to you with a proposition, a claim that looks like a claim about truth, and you try and work out whether the proposition is true. Foucault would say, you're missing the point. If somebody comes to you with a claim about anything in the universe, you should not be trying to figure out whether that claim is true. What you should be trying to do is to analyse how political claims and claims to power are suffused within or hidden under that truth claim. The truth claim, remember, is just a political or a power claim in disguise. And the whole aim of discourse is to uncover those hidden power dynamics within conversations that purport to be about facts. In fact, dominant groups want, sometimes without even realising it, just to maintain their power, and they do that by making these purported truth claims. Uh, somebody who makes a truth claim might think they're saying something about the truth of the way the universe is, but in fact what they're doing is, is just a disguised form of uh, a, a disguised attempt to manipulate the social situation or the political situation they're in in their own interests. So the purpose of all dialogue is to expose what's going on to the surface. In other words, to deconstruct the dialogue. To deconstruct means to expose the hidden power dynamics within a claim about truth. So, Michel Foucault. Thirdly, Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw introduced the idea of intersectionality, which remember we talked about a few videos ago. Intersectionality is the claim that a person's identity is not just um, comprised of the particular one group you might happen to notice about them, white, but an intersection of a range of different groups, white, married, British, male, for example. Uh, and the uh, intersection of all the different groups that an individual belongs to defines that person. They're not really an individual as such, they're a member of the intersection of all those groups. Now, Kimberly Crenshaw was interested in how that observation 
led to a critique of postmodernism. She was working within that school, but she had a critique for it. Remember that postmodernism, um, uh, as represented by Michel Foucault and obviously countless others, postmodernism says, well, when you hear a truth claim, you shouldn't really be trying to figure out whether it's true. You should be trying to uncover the hidden power dynamics disguised under the surface of the truth claim to deconstruct the discourse or the dialogue. Well, she pointed out that that's something that you can't do if you are at the intersection of lots of oppressed groups. Put it another way, if you happen to be, Kimberly Crenshaw might say, a poor black woman, you're three times oppressed, you're at the intersection of three oppressed groups, and you're not in a position to uncover the hidden power dynamics uh, within discourses that you're engaged in or that you hear. What that means is that postmodernism is wrong, Kimberly Crenshaw would say, the the problem with it is there's one thing that can't be deconstructed. Oppression can't be deconstructed. And so there's one objective truth that we definitely can all ag agree on, is that some people are oppressed. Oppression exists. So in one sense, it looks like a backtracking slightly from postmodernism. In another sense, it's sort of a development of postmodernism. It's a way of uh, articulating that amid all the swirl of subjectivity where postmodernism leaves us, the one thing that we know to be true, the one objective fact about the universe is that certain groups of people who lie at the intersections of these oppressed groups are oppressed. Systemic oppression is the one true reality in the universe and everything is about uncovering that truth. So those three thinkers are stepping stones along the way to contemporary critical theory. Now, uh, you've, uh, having listened to all that, you may well be feeling in a little bit of a whirl about like where does all this stuff land? And what I want to show you in the next video, so hang on for tomorrow, in the next video is uh, how this takes shape in modern critical theory, in, in the modern world, and in the kinds of dialogues that you may have seen or encountered in the media or elsewhere, and we'll start moving towards a biblical and Christian critique of those points. Okay, so in the previous couple of videos, we've completed our very brief cursory historical overview of some of the main stepping stones on the journey towards contemporary critical theory. And that puts us in a position now where we're able to uh, look a little bit more closely and start to examine some of the ideas and some of the people in a little bit more detail. So what I want to do is to start with the three figures whom we looked at last time, uh, Michel Foucault, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. And just to ask, okay, well, let's just think in a little bit more detail about how we might critique these people from a biblical standpoint. Then we're going to start doing the same with some of the other ideas that we've encountered, and we'll draw out some uh, uh, more contemporary notions and terms and so on that you may have encountered and do the same thing with them against this background that hopefully we have in place now where we kind of understand where critical theory is coming from. I want to take these three in a different order from how I presented them in the previous video. Let's start with Michel Foucault. Think of Michel Foucault as your classic postmodernist. Every truth claim is in fact a disguised political claim. 
And so if somebody comes with a truth claim concerning anything at all, the aim should not be to uncover whether this statement is factually accurate about maths or history or science or medicine or anything else. The aim should be to uncover and expose the latent political moves, the latent biases, the latent attempts at manipulation, the latent power plays which are hidden beneath the surface of this truth claim. Every time you hear somebody say something which purports to be true, what you're actually hearing is an attempt at manipulation. And the aim of discourse is to deconstruct and thus to uncover those attempts at manipulation. Well, what do we make of that? Well, what's interesting here is that here, as actually with both the other two thinkers, you notice there's a tiny, tiny, tiny grain of truth in what they're saying. It's the grain of truth, of course, which is like the the bait on the hook that makes the whole philosophy seem more plausible than it ought to. The, the grain of truth in what Foucault is saying is that, of course, it's true that sometimes facts about science or medicine, or to take a few random examples from recent months, epidemiology, uh, are actually political claims in disguise. They're attempts to manipulate. They are power plays. They're not really statements of truth at all. And the right way to analyze those statements of truth is to uncover the manipulation that's going on under the surface. Often the clue to the fact that there's manipulation going on under the surface is that opposing claims are silenced. And we've seen a fair bit of that in recent months as well. So the problem with Michel Foucault is not that the claim that he's making is never right in any circumstances. The problem is that he's saying it's always like this all the time, and that's a mistake. The simple fact is there are some statements which are true, gloriously and wonderfully true. And our job is actually to uncover those truths, as well as to spot where there are latent power dynamics at work which ought to be exposed. What God says in his word about his purposes in the world, what he's revealed about himself in Christ, what he says about how we should live as a church community and govern ourselves and seek to act in the world, those things are true. And what it means to be a Christian is to uncover the truth of those things and to live in accordance with them. So postmodernism is wrong at that point. And therefore, the impact that it's had on critical theory makes critical theory wrong there as well. Let's come next to Kimberly Crenshaw, um, who's interesting because she's a postmodern thinker who's reacting against postmodernism slightly. So whereas postmodernism is saying that every truth claim ought to be deconstructed in the kind of way we've talked about, Kimberly Crenshaw points out, well, if you're at the intersection of two or three or four of these uh, underprivileged, disadvantaged, oppressed groups, you can't do that. And moreover, that if you are an oppressed minority, a member of multiple oppressed groups at that intersection of those different groups, and you have an oppressed oppressor narrative, then that is true. You can't deconstruct your narrative. That thing is true, and therefore oppressed oppressor narratives are the only true thing in the universe. The only true fact about existence is oppression. I'll just think about that for a second. Again, notice the tiny grain of truth. If you sort of look at that claim from a certain angle and read it super generously and just try and think about it for a second, you can just about 
occupy a perspective from which you can see why somebody might think like that for a while. And you can certainly see why somebody who might, might be led in from an emotional standpoint to embrace that point of view. Let me give you a, a, a kind of another way of looking at it it's certainly true that some people's experience of life is so totally dominated by oppression that it may as well be true for all intents and purposes for them some days probably that oppression is the only thing in the universe now in a sane moment they would realize it's not the only thing that's true about the universe christians who've suffered oppression know wonderfully and gloriously that their oppression is not the only true thing in the universe. But you can kind of sympathize, can't you, just about for a moment with the idea that actually for people who are experiencing oppression, it's kind of understandable that somebody would make this claim on their behalf that that's the only true thing about the universe. The real tragedy is, of course, not only that it's not true, but that to make that claim doesn't help. How is oppression to be dealt with? Oppression is to be dealt with in the end by living out the truth of those other things that we pointed to earlier. Oppression is to be dealt with by living out the truth that in Christ, men and women, black and white, slave and free, rich and poor, uh, men and women from every tribe and tongue and language and nation and people can come and must come together in Christ to be united in him. If we undercut the truth of that claim, then we basically cut the branch off that we're sitting on. We have no solution to the oppression that we found. So it's a real tragedy to the extent that Kimberly Crenshaw and those influenced by her have actually identified uh, genuine oppression in the world. And sometimes they have. By insisting that that's the only objectively true fact about the universe, they've made it impossible for it ever to be addressed. Because it's only in Christ and through the gospel that it could be addressed. Finally, let's think about Derek Bell. Remember the couple of things that Derek Bell pointed out, the legal scholar, pointed out that the racism is the ordinary state of society, not excusable, but not aberrant or unusual. It's just the way that things are. And moreover, that oppressors, for Derek Bell it was white oppressors particularly, only ever, fact, only ever act in favour of the oppressed when they're doing so for selfish reasons. So white people might act in such a way that favoured black people, but really they're only doing it to feather their own nest or better their own circumstances in life, when their interests happen to converge, hence the doctrine of interest convergence. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, tragically, it's true that sometimes people who ought to know better, who ought to act for the good of others, just for their own good, act for selfish reasons. Tragically, it's true that there have been areas of society, times and places and contexts where racism has looked like it's just the way things are because it's so prevalent. The problem is the absolutization of these claims, the insistence that it's always true everywhere. And one of the uh, consequences of this is seen in the work of uh, more recent writer, Robin D'Angelo, who insists that we must assume that racism is present everywhere, in every situation, in your workplace, in your sports club, in the shop that you just went into, in your town, in your family, in your church. He insists 
um, sorry, Derek Bell insists, and Robin DiAngelo also insists, that uh, racism is present everywhere. Now, what does that do to your way of life if you speak and think and act in those terms? What it will do is have you permanently always looking out for racism in everything, all the time, forever. There's no hope, even theoretically, that this problem could be solved. And so somebody who is drawn into this, perhaps drawn into it by the sense that sometimes racism does just look so all-pervasive that it feels like it's just present everywhere. Somebody who's drawn into it is actually being led into an ideology where they're being taught that it can never be eradicated from any relationships. So roll the clock forward 10 or 20 years. Such a person will be fundamentally denying the gospel by, by denying the possibility of any hope for change. They'll actually be destroying all their relationships by insisting that everybody is always acting out of ill-motivated self-interest, even when they are actually doing good. They'll actually end up utterly ruined by guilt themselves, because even to the extent they manage to do good themselves for other people, they'll realise in this sort of self-referentially destructive way that, well, those good actions must have been motivated by cynical self-interest anyway. So you end up going around in this vortex of hopelessness and accusation of others and guilt towards yourself never able to change because you've denied the possibility that people can change gloriously, wonderfully. Racism may be common, but it's not ordinary. It's not normal. It is a sinful aberration. And in Christ, it can be eradicated. It can be done away with, but only in Christ can it be done away with and not through this self-destructive attempt to distort and manipulate relationships in this kind of way. Okay, I think that's enough for now on those three individuals. We're going to talk a little bit more about some of the other ideas that you'll find discussed in and influencing uh, uh, critical theory uh, dialogues and you'll find in all kinds of other contexts. Okay, let's continue our look at critical theory and particularly I want to continue to explore a Christian response and critique to this ideology. I want to structure the next five videos, seems rather a long way to be getting ahead of ourselves, but we'll give it a go. The next five videos by uh, critiquing five of the most significant ways in which critical theory and the the specific forms of this ideology are making headway in the world around us. And that will allow us to explore uh, what it is that you're actually seeing as you look around you uh, on social media, if you do, and certainly in the world around you and in your workplace and from perhaps even friends and relatives and so on who've been influenced by this ideology. Those five ways in which critical theory uh, make uh, seems to be making progress, um, and we'll look at these in turn, are first, ceaseless activism, Second, uh, a distorted and deliberately manipulative use as la of language, which acts, thirdly, as a kind of Trojan horse, bringing with it a whole array of bureaucrats and administrators who are able to ingrain this ideology in the structures of organisations. Fourthly, no platforming. And fifthly, 
actual physical violence. We'll look at how critical theory openly and specifically employs these five means to forward its message and the reasons it does so and how we should respond to it in the next five videos. So first up, the ceaseless activism of proponents of critical theory in all its forms. Uh, sometimes this is stirred up by explicit workshops and seminars and training courses and so on, especially in academic contexts at universities, in the public sector and government institutions, and increasingly actually in larger private companies as well. And sometimes you get it in charities and non-profit organizations. Even some churches have bought into this ideology and are bringing in people to run workshops with the aim of stirring up people at the grassroots, so to speak, who may not be fully bought into the ideology, but are nonetheless struck by features of it. And they are then in a position to push uh, strands of this thinking in the various contexts in which they have friends and work colleagues and so on. This raises an important point that we uh, mentioned a few videos ago. Not everybody who you encounter who seems to be endorsing something which sounds a bit like critical race theory or critical gender theory or something like that. Not everybody who you hear who sounds like that, will be a fully card-carrying endorser of every single plank of the manifesto, so to speak. They may just have been captured by one or two strands of it. They're not necessarily a bad actor. They may be naive, and hopefully exposing some of this stuff will reduce the danger of that naivety. But uh, they're being manipulated, effectively, into being grassroots activists for this movement. And that activism then takes place sometimes on the streets and campaigns and marches and with signs and graffiti and that kind of thing. Uh, sometimes the graffiti is infrastructural and actually not really graffiti at all. It's put there by the local authorities. If you walk down the street here in London, uh, our local zebra crossing has been replaced just in case you don't know, a zebra crossing is a marking on the road which uh, uh, means that pedestrians have a right of way in a certain section of the roadway so cars have to stop. And it's a series of black and white stripes about two feet wide that run parallel to the direction of the street. Well, our local zebra crossing has been replaced. It's no longer black and white. It's a swirly rainbow, which apparently has the same traffic significance, the same legal significance. You're still supposed to stop if you're driving your car and you still have right of way if you're a pedestrian. But of course, it has a rather different ideological significance. Social media is another context in which the uh, activism takes place and uh, 2020 has been quite a year for social media hasn't it because the, the confinement that we've seen of, of many people across the western world because of COVID-19 has dramatically increased the extent to which people live their entire lives online and if you if you're not in the social media world and then I'm optically encouraging you to be. But if you're not, then it may surprise you to learn how to the extent to which many people actually live their entire lives almost. All of their relationships are mediated through that context. And so the stuff they do on social media really feels as real as it gets to them. And it's quite common actually to find people who, who really regard themselves as having a mission to forward a certain agenda. And the way that they do that is simply by posting stuff on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is. That's what they, that's what they do in life. It's the raison d'etre of their existence. It's what they feel called to and they feel a kind of moral imperative to uh, drive that agenda forward in those contexts. Now, that leads to a couple of um, background considerations which help us to explain how this uh, grassroots activism is getting so much traction. Remember, for critical theory, differences of opinion are a moral imperative. 
they're not the kind of thing about which we can just agree to disagree. And as Christians, it's interesting because there are many things about which we would say, yes, a, a difference of opinion is a moral imperative. And yet there are many things also where we'd want to say, well, you know, we can agree to disagree on that. And even things where we do think the issues are very significant, we can still have friends who have different opinions from us. I have friends who are Muslims and friends who are Buddhists and friends who are atheists. And, and that we have huge differences of opinion. But I don't make the thing on which we disagree a battleground for every encounter. Well, it's hard for somebody who's bought into critical theory to to avoid making everything a battleground because everything is a moral imperative. Every difference of opinion has the force of every difference of opinion about the, the matters with which critical theory is concerned has the force of a moral imperative. If you don't agree, you're actually evil. And this is bolstered by, remember a couple of the people we looked at in the last couple of videos, Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell. Remember Kimberly Crenshaw's claim um, in responding to postmodernism that whereas postmodernism wants to say, well, kind of everything is subjective, all value is subjective. What Kimberly Crenshaw says is not quite. The, there is something that is objective, and that is the fact of oppression. Oppression is objectively real. It's the only objectively real thing. And therefore, if you're brought into that strand of the ideology, the, the thing that looms, not large, but massive in your landscape is the reality of the oppression around you. And you cannot allow yourself not to speak, indeed to shout about it from the rooftops at every opportunity. So you can see why people seem driven to hysterical hyper-reactions uh, sometimes in relation to significant events, but sometimes in relation to quite insignificant events on college campuses and so on, by their commitment to critical theory. The reason is because it's a difference of opinion and it concerns oppression and it's a moral imperative to respond to it. That's all the more so because of Derek Bell's claim. Remember Derek Bell, the legal scholar, Harvard University professor, where he claimed racism in particular is inescapable. Not that it's okay because it's inescapable, but it's the ordinary state of society. We can't imagine a situation in which it didn't exist. The question is not, is this a racist office environment? It is a racist office environment. And the question is, how exactly are you being racist? Now, this helps to explain some of the work of one well-known modern writer associated with uh, critical race theory in particular, Robin D'Angelo. Now, she's written a very influential book a couple of years ago, White Fragility, which topped the New York Times bestsellers list for over a year after it was released in 2018. And that book has generated, or has been part of generating, a huge and rapidly growing industry of these training workshops and seminars and so on that I spoke about earlier. And she runs actually quite expensive uh, training courses all over the United States and I think the world for companies and organizations in order to uh, train them in critical race theory and in effect to produce activists in those environments. Now, remember what um, I hinted at, what happens if, let's suppose that happens in your office and you were to push back slightly against the claim that you're racist. Um, well, that's white fragility. You're pushing back against 
the accusation of racism and the invitation to declare where you have been racist, that's white fragility. And it, you can see you're caught in a kind of Orwellian double bind. Um, on the one hand, if you acknowledge that you're racist, well, that's bad because you're racist. And if you don't acknowledge you're racist, well, that's bad too, because the fact that you're denying it is white fragility. And we all know you must be racist, really. You're just a denialist as well. The end result then is what's going to happen is somebody in your organization is going to get it. And if you resist, you won't. The person who gets it will be promoted to a position of administrative prominence in relation to these issues. More on that in a couple of videos time. And then they're going to be able to control company policy and you're going to be on the receiving end of it. So the sad fact is actually people are going to lose their jobs. People have already been losing their jobs because of their either bewilderment at the claims that are being made about them or against them, or perhaps because of their clear-sighted refusal to play ball, refusal to just lie down and take the abuse, which is in effect what it is, the false accusations that are leveled against them. And it's hard to know what to say in the face of that. Um, it's tremendously painful to uh, contemplate friends of ours, uh, even people we don't know, losing their livelihoods uh, when they're accused of holding reprehensible views that they in fact deny. But they're losing their livelihoods because they refuse to cut with the grain of this ideology. I guess the one response I would make is that though we may not be able to sidestep um, uh, training events and seminars and so on like that in our workplaces, if, you, if it's happening in your workplace, then well, what I'd suggest is that you talk to somebody about it before um, it starts, if you're able to. Um, some, talk to someone at church, give me a shout, or uh, talk to somebody else in your organization whom you could ask questions about what's the purpose of this. You, you may not be able to sidestep that, but there are things you can sidestep. Uh, it's not necessary for us to engage face-to-face -face with the public marches and with the constant noise on social media. I think the book of Proverbs would have something to say about the wisdom of answering a fool according to his folly in those kinds of situations. Uh, actually, this touches on the sort of thing we've been thinking about on Thursday nights in the book group when we've been reading Out of the Ashes, where as Christians, what we want to affirm is the way that we want to change society does not consist in social media ranting or uh, engaging with marches in the streets. It's the hard work of serving within our churches, nurturing those in our families, working hard in our jobs, loving our husbands and wives, our parents, our children and so on, and seeking to build a meaningful, contextualised embodied Christian community where we are. That actually will outlast this current storm in a teacup, even if this storm in a teacup does take away many of the good things that we have been used to enjoying in these times in the world that we're living in, where we've enjoyed the blessing of being influenced by Christian values for so long. Okay, I think that's probably enough on that subject. We'll turn in the next video to the second facet of uh, critical theories way of making headway in the world. Okay, let's continue our critique of uh, critical theory by looking at the second of those five methods by which I suggested in the previous video. Critical theory has been successful in galvanizing support at grassroots level. Uh, 
to create activists and people enthusiastic for its agenda. The second of those methods was, as I said, the deliberately misleading and tendentious use of language, at least deliberately by some who are seeking to shape and drive this agenda, what actually happens at street level, so to speak, grassroots level, is that people are deceived and inadvertently use this language in a misleading and uh, tendentious way. Let me illustrate what I mean with reference to perhaps the most well-known organisation influenced by critical theory in the modern world, Black Lives Matter. Let's just think about that organisation for a second. Why do you think it's been so successful in attracting such vast numbers of activists and sympathisers at grassroots level in the last few years? Surely, one of the critical answers lies in the name Black Lives Matter. To paraphrase Noam Chomsky a little bit, they have chosen as their name a slogan that nobody could possibly disagree with. Black Lives Matter, and that is the key to good propaganda, Noam Chomsky said. In other words, what they've basically done is to say, look, if you believe that Black Lives Matter, then you've got to sign up with us. And if you were to refuse to sign up with us, then effectively what you're saying is Black Lives Don't Matter. Anybody want to say that? Didn't think so. You know what's happened to the few people, prominent people who refused. Even those who tried to return serve by saying, well, all lives matter, received short shrift and in some contexts suffered uh, personal loss on quite a considerable scale. So what happened, in effect, is that the terms through which we do all of our thinking and discussing and trying to orient ourselves in the world have been redefined with teeth. So either you buy into this or... You don't buy into it, and if you don't buy into it, you're an evil person because you're denying something that everybody would want to affirm. In fact, the same thing has happened with all of the key slogans and phrases that uh, characteristically feature in the training workshops and in the literature and in the, uh, the uh, dialogue and discourse of critical theory advocates all the time. For example, equity, diversity, Inclusion, stewardship, anti-racism, anti-bias, justice, social justice. Anybody want to be against any of those things? Well, I certainly wouldn't. Rightly defined, I wouldn't be, want to be against any of those things. The problem is, they're not rightly defined. They're all wrongly defined by critical theory. And so what happens is this language becomes a kind of Trojan horse uh, inside which is smuggled all kinds of uh, misleading and destructive ideological features. And so at grassroots level, what happens is that people who swallow the language because, well, diversity appeals to me or equality appeals to me or anti-racism appeals to me, they don't realise that what they're actually doing is swallowing a whole bunch of toxic ideology at the same time. This is why, as I mentioned a few videos ago, it's important to be aware that while there are some willfully malicious bad actors who are uh, active proponents of critical theory in various forms, that's not necessarily true of everybody who signs up to various forms of this movement. Just because somebody's got a BLM uh, avatar on their Facebook page doesn't necessarily mean they're signed up for all the things that we're critiquing. They might be naive. And I hope that discussions like this may help to reduce the danger of naivety. 
but they're not necessarily signed up to all of the really evil and toxic concomitants of the thing that they're apparently endorsing. They might just be meaning to say something quite anodyne and, and even biblical that we'd all want to affirm that we don't want to be racist. Well, we don't want to be racist. The problem is taking wholesale the language of critical theory is not the way to do it. And what we'll do in future videos is actually look at some of this language and, and I'll show you how it's been redefined by some within the movement. I was shocked to discover actually that even the terms black and white have been redefined by advocates of critical race theory. In one context I was reading about an Asian man was shocked to discover that he was now categorized as white in one particular, I think it was an educational context. Well, an Asian man is not white. He's actually not black either. He's Asian and Asian is a fairly a broad category, not particularly useful for doing analysis with because Asia is a pretty vast place with a large number of different countries, all of different cultural backgrounds. And of course, the people within those countries have a vast range of different backgrounds and ideological standpoints. As we said before, thinking about categories in general is not a brilliant idea if you want to actually make a headway in the world and think accurately about people. But defining an Asian man as white is just wrong. It's just not even true. And so effectively what's happened is that the terms here have been redefined in such a way as to make tendentious and, in his case, destructive judgments against him. So what's the end result of this? Well, a couple of things. Firstly, as I've mentioned already, individual people, friends of yours, perhaps even if you're watching this, well done for getting this far, no disrespect intended, but you yourself, perhaps even you yourself have been misled, not willingly, but unknowingly misled into thinking that critical theory is actually onto something because it uses and, and endorses the language of equity and diversity and inclusion and anti-racism. I want to encourage you to keep going with these videos because I want to show you that it's actually misusing the language. And if you really believe in what those terms should stand for, you ought to be opposed to critical theory. So individual people get misled by the tasty looking bait of these misdefined terms. But then the same thing happens, secondly, at an organizational level. No organization wants to have its name emblazoned all over Twitter and characterized as a racist corporation, does it? And so what tends to happen is that large companies especially get spooked into buying into the seminars and training courses and anti-racism training and bias awareness training and unconscious bias awareness training and everything else kind of training. They get spooked into uh, buying into that program and that has the effect of generating activists within those organizations at grassroots level who are committed above all else to the critical theory agenda within that organization. Might be a government organization, might be a non-profit, might be a church might be a company, might be your family or whatever it is. And if it's in an organization that has the kind of organizational structure that many have, then there will be bureaucratic positions either already existing or created for those people to occupy. Diversity officers, equality officers, diversity, equity and inclusion officers, stewardship officers, and so on and so forth. And that leads us on to the third way in which this organization, this uh, ideology, my apologies, has been making headway in the world, which we'll look at in the next video, the tendency to occupy administrative and bureaucratic positions 
with extremely significant degrees of influence in the long term. We'll look at that in a future video. For now, just in responding to this point, as Christians, we want to tell the truth and speak with integrity and not allow language to be misled, uh, sorry, to mislead when we're using it and to seek clarity and proper definition of language when other people are using it. Again, this may not always be possible, but it's a warning to us, isn't it? It's like 2 Corinthians 4 kind of flavor. We speak the truth plainly. We don't mislead. We don't dress things up. We don't say one thing knowing that people will actually understand something else. Set forth the truth plainly and commend ourselves to every right-thinking person's conscience in the sight of God, whose judgment in the end alone matters. Okay, so we're thinking again about critical theory. We're trying to understand how it is that this ideology is making such headway, especially at grassroots level. And in the previous video, we highlighted one fundamental plank of its approach, which is the distorted and misleading use of language. So what happens in practice is that people, uh, ordinary men and women, not necessarily ill-intentioned at all, are drawn towards the language of, let's say, diversity, equity, inclusiveness, and so on, because of what they think think it means. But smuggled in under those uh, appealing and benign looking categories are more uh, malevolent notions which are disguised by the apparently upright and praiseworthy language. In other words, language has become a kind of Trojan horse within critical theory, whereby all kinds of uh, ideas can be smuggled into organisations and bought into by people who work in there. But there's another step in this approach in practice, and to uh, uh, introduce it to you, one way I've found helpful to think about this is to pick up an analogy, uh, the analogy of the Trojan horse, in fact, which has been used by James Lindsay, one critic of critical theory. And he talks about uh, the, the Trojan horse of critical theory and its use of language, and asks the question, well, what exactly does the Trojan horse contain? Of course, in the ancient uh, a story from Troy, uh, it contains soldiers. But what does the Trojan horse contain in the case of critical theory? And he says, surprisingly perhaps, an army of administrators and bureaucrats. And we hinted at this in the previous video. What actually happens in practice is that the people in, let's say, an organization or a nonprofit or a, a business or a government department who are most enthusiastic about the agenda of critical theory, which is brought in through the training programs or the online discussion and that kind of thing, will volunteer for or be appointed to administrative and bureaucratic positions within the organization. And from there, they will exercise an extraordinary amount of control over the functioning of the organization. Now, sometimes these are informal positions. It might be the person who volunteers to write the speech code for your uh, university campus online discussion forum. Or it might be the person who offers to uh, draw up some community guidelines for your uh, discussions at work, your email forums, or whatever uh, software you use to communicate with each other in the workplace. 
or it might be a formal and full-time position. And we've seen in recent years an explosion of full-time positions, especially in the academic world, but also in government agencies and other organizations. Some of them are required by government regulation. Others have just been put in there because of a perceived consumer demand for diversity officers and equality officers and uh, equality commissions and inclusion uh, SARs and various deans at universities and so on and so forth. The multiplication of these administrative and bureaucratic position, positions uh, in which people are located who have this felt calling to forward the agenda of critical theory. And these administrative positions are particularly powerful because if you think about how many organizations work, the administrative and bureaucratic functions of an organization kind of sit outside of or even above the executive or managerial functions of the organization. So I'll give an example. Um, once you've got a speech code, which may have been written just by a volunteer or by um, somebody junior in the organization, a new member of staff, a new graduate, somebody in their mid-twenties who's just been well-meaning perhaps, but been captured by this ideology and is basically lifting the content of a speech code from somewhere else and dumping it in your organization with a few tweaks here and there. Once you've got the speech code, everybody's stuck with it. Once you've got, let's say, some uh, administrative or bureaucratic restrictions on your hiring policy, the people responsible for the hiring, who may be quite senior and experienced and wise, are constrained by the hiring policy. Once you've got a quota in place which restricts the composition of your board, the chairman of the board is stuck with it and has to comply with it. And that's all the more so if, as has actually happened in practice, this movement gains momentum and it starts being required by government regulation that you should have not just the uh, positions in place, but the policies in place which require, let's say, a certain uh, quota of different identity groups on the boards of companies or in organizations or as employees in a company and so on. What's starting to happen is that administrative positions are beginning to lock in place in these organizations, identity politics, that is viewing people and assessing them on the basis of their membership of various groups rather than as individuals. So what we must have is one trans person on the board, at least, for example, rather than looking at the pool of candidates and seeing who's most suitable and most competent for the position. So you, you start to see and this is another way, it's not just the grassroots um, activism, social media, marches in the streets, graffiti, normal ever flow of conversation and so on. This is another way in which critical theory has begun to forward its agenda. And once it gets locked into an organization like that, it can start to import these ideas in much greater numbers and with much higher density. And some of the key ideas, diversity, equity, inclusion, we're going to look at those terms in future videos and I want to explain what they mean. They in fact mean something like the opposite of what you'd expect and perhaps even what some of the proponents might have believed they meant. So that's another thing to look out for. Again, it is not obvious to me how we can do anything about this. Uh, in terms of critique, this is now at the point where description of the ideology is itself a form of critique, because once you realize what's actually going on, it's self-refuting ideologically. And what's alarming, of course, is that it seems not to be self-refuting in the minds of the people who are still forwarding it. 
I hope it's obvious to you why and how this particular aspect of the way critical theory works is so reprehensible. I think that'll do us for now. We'll move on in the next video and we'll look at a couple more ways in which this ideology is penetrating the society in which we live and the organisations that we're a part of. Okay, so we're thinking again about critical theory, trying to analyse how it works at grassroots level in the modern world, and particularly how it's been so successful in pushing its agenda forward in so many different contexts. And we've looked at three different uh, methods by which it seems to operate. First, uh, by encouraging ceaseless activism at grassroots level through seminars and discussions and online forums and so on and so forth. Second, by a deliberately distorted and misleading use of language, which then uh, misleads some people who may not be well-intentioned, but perhaps are naive, uh, into buying into the ideology of critical theory. They think they're buying into something which looks unobjectionable, like, let's say, inclusivity. But what they're actually buying into is something that's really radically different from what even they think it is. And then those people, thirdly, are encouraged to seek and sometimes are given positions of administrative and bureaucratic influence which allows them to cement those views into the organisations, companies and so on that they're a part of. Today I want to look at a fourth method by which critical theory is cementing its hold in many contexts in the public square. No platforming. No platforming. This is the practice of seeking to, uh, by petitions and protests and in all kinds of other ways, to deny people who have an opposing viewpoint a platform, hence no platforming, on which to articulate their views. A classic example of this would be in a university context. A speaker might be invited. Lots of people don't like the speaker or what they think he or she is going to stand for. And so rather than going along and debating with them, they'll try and shut them down deny them a platform, petition the university to have them kicked off campus or disrupt and protest at the event so that nobody can hear anything and the thing is a waste of time. Classic example of this was recently, maybe a year or so back, um, that's not really recent anymore, is it? Things are moving so fast, but a year or so back at a British university when feminist scholar Jermaine Greer was denied a platform at a British university. You've got to think, what's going on there? She was, you'd think that somebody with her pedigree Though we disagree with her on many things, she certainly has a, a tremendous pedigree as a respected scholar within feminism. You'd think that she'd be welcomed as a kind of elder stateswoman of critical theory and the ideologies that gave rise to it. But no, people who are bought into critical theory sought to no platform her because Jermaine Greer was not fully bought into their ideas of critical gender theory and a few other bits and pieces. So what's going on here? Well, in order to understand this, I want to pose the question in the form of a puzzle and then solve it by digging back into a bit of the history. The puzzle is this. Back in the 60s, the, the antecedents of contemporary critical theory were all in favour of free speech. Free speech for everybody. And of course, you think about that in the 60s and late and early 70s, um, the progressive movements wanted the capacity to express themselves in public and to live in the way they wanted to live. And they felt that it wasn't fair that they weren't able to speak. And so fr freedom of speech was a rallying cry for those early progressive movements, whereas now their intellectual offspring are wanting to deny freedom of speech to people with whom they disagree. Why should that be? You'd think if somebody were in favour of freedom of speech in principle, then they'd be in favour of freedom of speech for everybody, wouldn't you? Of course, the real truth is, critical theory and its antecedents 
back in the 60s were never in favour of freedom of speech in principle, but only as a short-term tactic before they could gain power. You discover this if you just think back to our old friend Michel Foucault, one of the significant figures in what we might call classic postmodernism, at least within philosophy. Remember what Foucault said about speech. He said that when you're hearing somebody articulate a truth claim or make an argument, the point of engaging with them is not to engage with the truth of what they have to say. That's not what discourse is about. Truth claims, Foucault says, are basically power plays in disguise. If I put an argument forward for some ideological or religious or political position, I'm not actually trying to make the argument, and you'd be missing the point if you tried to engage with me at the level of my propositions. What you should be doing instead is to try to deconstruct my argument, to try and figure out what are the hidden agendas, the political motivations, the power plays behind it. Speech is all about power. It's not all about finding out the truth. And this is such a radically different view of what speech is from a Christian view of speech that it's really hard for us to get to grips with it. But we need to try and imagine what life looks like to a postmodernist. Speech is not about truth. It's about power. So if you feel disempowered, what will you insist on? Well, you'll insist on freedom of speech because you want to gain the power that you feel, rightly or wrongly, back in the 60s, you don't have. But what are you going to do once you feel you now have a handle on the levers of political power? Well, you're going to want to deny speech, that is, power, to people with whom you disagree. There's no point of principle here where, well, you know, we really should listen to each other and, and have a discussion and I should listen to what you've got to say. That, that principle is a Christian principle, but it's not a critical theoretic principle. It's vital to understand this. If you were a Christian trying to engage with, let's say, Jermaine Greer's feminism, what would you do? Well, you'd buy a stack of her books and you'd listen to hours of her lectures and you'd think and you try and engage and respond to the articles and the arguments and the propositions she was making. You wouldn't think, well, I know I disagree with you anyway, so I'm not going to listen. That would not be a responsible and mature Christian approach to thinking and to listening and to discourse generally. That Christian approach to discourse has shaped so much in the West that we can hardly imagine another way of thinking. But critical theory has a radically different way of thinking about speech. It's all about power. So what's going to happen if, let's say, to take a concrete example, um, Jordan Peterson, prominent critic of many of the uh, strands of thought within critical theory, show up, shows up on his speaking tour of a year or two ago at a university uh, to give a big lecture. And there's a couple of thousand people there on the audience. And they're all um, in uh, some measure interested in hearing what he's got to say. What are you going to do if you disagree with him? If you're coming from a critical theory mindset, you will not engage. You're not interested in engaging. There's nothing. Truth is not a thing that you want to engage in. What you will do is you'll claim that this is a power play and you'll try to shut it down, either by protesting to the university authorities to try and get him thrown off campus, or if you're unsuccessful, as many times they were, by disrupting the protest loudly and in some cases violently, as actually happened. So that uh, dis disrupting the event, sorry, so that it can't take place, or if it does take place, it's interrupted and is less useful. All of this is in effect a form of ideological totalitarianism. You've heard that phrase um, 
in various contexts or something like it, soft totalitarianism or something of that sort. It's soft only in the sense that it doesn't use actual physical weapons at that point, although we'll see in a couple of videos time that critical theory is not even uh, averse to that. But it's totalitarian in the sense that it simply refuses to hear any ideas that are not its own. And from a Christian point of view, you want to say a couple of things, don't you? Like, I might not particularly like many of the ideas that are current in the public square. I, I could give you a long list of people who I, I don't really find very appealing or I just disagree radically with what they've got to say. But the way that you know you disagree radically, the way you know you don't find them appealing is by listening to them. And as Christians, we want to insist that the solution to speech that we disagree with is more speech. It's more articulation of the truth. It's the insistence on engaging with people about what they believe. And here's my hope, at least in some of the contexts in which we may find ourselves. We may find ourselves talking to people who have been somewhat influenced by critical theory, friends, family members, and there may be enough sense left in their worldview that they will still be willing to talk. That it may not be the case that critical theory has totally overwhelmed any sense that they have wanting to engage with anybody who disagrees with them, especially if they're your friend or your family member. They must love you and you, you love them. And perhaps there's a possibility there of just sitting down and engaging in conversation and realize this, this is the encouraging point, simply by engaging in conversation, we're actually attacking the foundations of critical theory itself because we're articulating tacitly that ideas are there to be discussed. We play the ball, not the man, as the old English saying goes. You don't know whether you recognize that from the rugby field or the soccer pitch. If we can sit down and engage with people about what they actually believe, actually we're winning. It's exactly what Jesus and the apostles did, of course. So today we need to turn our attention to perhaps the most disturbing feature of critical theory, at least insofar as it makes itself known and is seeking to forward its agenda at grassroots level and has done over the last few years and months, certainly. In fact, this is something you've seen on your TV screens uh, throughout most of 2020 and a good deal before that. I'm referring to actual physical violence, destruction of property, physical violence towards people. I'm reminded of the bizarre spectacle of mainstream newspaper re reporters standing in front of burning buildings at night time while protesters shoot fireworks uh, over barricades and at other people. And the tagline underneath uh, indicates that these are fiery but mostly peaceful protests. They're not mostly peaceful protests, they're violent protests. And it's important to understand why they are. One of the most disturbing features of critical theory is that this violence is not an accidental or incidental feature of the theory. It's actually hardwired into the philosophy that undergirds it. Violence is part of the means by which critical theory and its antecedents say that they ought to be seeking to pursue their agenda. I'm going to demonstrate this in a moment, but suffice it to say that this is one of those points at which description really is evaluation and critique. It's not particularly necessary to say more about it once you've actually discovered the facts on the ground, so to speak, in the writings of the philosophers 
who've given rise to this movement. And the philosopher I have in mind, of course, you may have come across him, or you may be guessing where we're going with this, is Herbert Marcuse, born in 1898, died in the uh, late 70s. Uh, he was a member of the Frankfurt School. Remember, that was the philosophical uh, school in Frankfurt, Germany, that sought to apply Marxist uh, ideological uh, notions to other areas of uh, alleged oppression besides oppression uh, on the ground of class or economic uh, situation. And he wrote an essay, a very well-known essay, called Repressive Tolerance in a book that was published during the 60s. Uh, it was published in a book with two other authors. The book was called A Critique of Pure Tolerance. And if you want, you can find the essay, Repressive Tolerance, full text is available online, and you can get hold of the book very cheaply because it sold pretty well and it was pretty influential, which is fairly disturbing when I tell you some of the things that are found within it. Marcuse distinguishes between different political movements. Uh, on the one hand, he talks about the left, and on the other hand, he talks about the right. And within the right, broadly what we might call conservatives, he lumps together as one category people that oppose the extension of public services and Medicare and Social Security, on the one hand, with movements that promote aggressive policies, armament, chauvinism, discrimination on the grounds of race and religion. That's something to think about, isn't it? For Herbert Marcuse, there's one category on the right, and you belong to that if you tick any of those boxes. If you uh, oppose the extension of Medicare and Social Security and public services, you're in the same box as people who promote aggressive policies, here unspecified, armament, chauvinism, discrimination on the grounds of race and religion. Quite what we do with a, a religious Christian conservative who was, let's say, opposed to the never-ending expansion of government programmes but was not uh, in favour of discrimination on the grounds of race and religion is not clear. But as far as we can make out from this essay, they belong on the right as opposed to the left. Now, what should be done about those groups that Marcuse says are on the right? He advocates, quote, intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. Yes, you heard that right. He actually published that. Having lumped together a fiscal conservative and a religious conservative with a racist, he then advocates in print intolerance towards them all. This would include, I'm quoting now from the essay, include the withdrawal of toleration of speech and assembly from those groups. So that's liberating tolerance as opposed to the repressive tolerance of the title. That's what Herbert Marcuse is advocating. So the question, of course, is, well, how far should we go in that direction? How far would Herbert Marcuse, rather, not we, how far would Herbert Marcuse advocate that his disciples should go in that direction of withdrawing tolerance of speech and assembly from groups that promote those agendas? The answer is a long way. And here the essay talks explicitly about violence. Again, I encourage you to read it. It's very instructive. Remember, of course, that this is from probably the most influential member of the Frankfurt School on contemporary American protest movements on the left. I'll read a paragraph and then I'll just uh, comment on it a little bit. And as I said, description is critique 
at this point. Quote, in terms of historical function, there is a difference between revolutionary and reactionary violence, between violence practiced by the oppressed and by the oppressors. In terms of ethics, both forms of violence are inhuman and evil, but since when is history made in accordance with ethical standards? To start applying them, that is, ethical standards, at the point where the oppressed rebel against the oppressors, the have-nots against the haves, is serving the cause of actual violence by weaken weakening the protest against it. Let me just make a few comments on that for you. Notice first, in the first sentence, he distinguishes between what he calls revolutionary violence and reactionary violence. Revolutionary violence is violence practiced by the oppressed, which for Marcuse is people on the left. Reactionary violence is violence conducted by people on the right, which is both the racists who advocate discrimination on the grounds of race and religion and so on, and also a fiscal conservative or a religious conservative who, for whom the violence would simply be the ordinary operation of, let's say, law and order. That's violence in Marcuse's mind. He distinguishes between those two things. The rebellion in the streets is revolutionary violence. The ordinary operation of, let's say, the police force is reactionary violence. And in terms of ethics, he says, both are inhuman and evil. But then he asks rhetorically immediately afterwards, since when is history made in accordance with ethical standards? How should we apply ethical standards in the case of these two scenarios? He immediately insists that we should not apply ethical standards when considering what he describes as revolutionary violence, violence conducted by those whom he calls the oppressed. I'll read it again, to start applying them, ethical standards, at the point where the oppressed rebel against the oppressors is serving the cause of actual violence by weakening the protest against it. Now that is a critical line because that could stand as a summary of the justification for all of the burning buildings and violence against individuals, human beings, that you've seen conducted by these critical theory influenced protest groups throughout the whole of 2020 and the last few years. What you'd expect somebody to stand up and say is this. This violence is not good in and of itself, but we mustn't argue against it because it's necessary in order to overthrow the worst violence that it's subjecting to. And you saw that actually on those news reports, didn't you? You saw the sense that uh, the reporter was in a sense, an apologist for the crowd, suggesting that they regretted the necessity of setting fire to the police station that he was standing in front of, but that they, he was speaking, so to speak, on behalf of the crowd, they felt it was necessary because of the, the visceral character, as the word one of the reporters used, of the uh, uh, protest, the emotions that the protesters felt. That's straight out of Herbert Marcuse's essay, Repressive Tolerance. We should not, he says, apply ethical critique to violence conducted in the name of what he calls left-wing revolution. And if you're a Christian conservative, or even not a Christian conservative, but a fiscal conservative, somebody who opposes the extension of public services, then you're an oppressor and violence against you in the name of the revolution can be justified. I Take it that, as I said already, 
description is sufficient critique, at least in that instance. Okay, so we are now coming towards what I think will be the end of this series of devotions on critical theory. I want to crave your indulgence though just for three more videos. The reason is what I'd like to do, unless somebody comes with a whole bunch more questions that we've not touched on, is just to look at this whole subject uh, from a slightly different angle. Recall, if you would, that critical theory is an ideology which serves to put forth a particular vision of what it calls social justice. And social justice is defined in a particular way according to critical theory. And what I want to do is to examine what we might call the three pillars of social justice according to critical theory. They are diversity, inclusion and equity. Now the reason this is important to do is because if I say those words, social justice, diversity, inclusion, equity, you can immediately start to get a sense of why it is that many people, well-intentioned people, though perhaps somewhat naive, including many Christians, are drawn to movements influenced by this ideology. Tell me seriously, do you want to go on record as being against justice, against social justice, against inclusion, against equity? Do we want a less inclusive society? You can see how the rhetoric would work, can't you? And the rhetoric is really persuasive. Words are able to persuade people of things. And so many Christians, along with many other people, can be drawn into these ideologies influenced by critical theory because they believe what the Trojan horse, so to speak, says on the box. And we need to take the lid off and we need to see what's actually inside it. The way to do this, I think, would be to examine well, what would be a good understanding of each of those three pillars, diversity, inclusion, equity? And then what does critical theory actually say about them? How does critical theory define them? So let's start off then in this video looking at diversity. Diversity is a good thing in many ways, isn't it? Think of some ways in which you could define diversity in biblical terms. Think most obviously of the Bible's teaching on the diversity of gifts within the body. The eye and the hand and the foot, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 12, are not the same. And any healthy church needs a range of different people with a range of different God-given gifts. God has made us all wonderfully different, and those different abilities can together contribute to the well-functioning character of that body. We need diversity in that sense. And that Christian principle has analogies everywhere, obviously, because the whole world is created by the living God. And so whatever you do during the day, you'll pretty soon discover that you need somebody else to contribute towards your project. This is most obvious in the workplace, but it's obvious actually everywhere. Think if you're working in a coffee shop, you're a barista, you might think you make the best coffee in the world. Maybe you make the best coffee in Texas and good on you and I'll be visiting your coffee shop if that's you and you do indeed make that great coffee. But bad news is you need somebody else who's great at designing the interior of coffee shops or great at working their way through all the legal paperwork to set up a business and operate it effectively, or managing a business, or doing the advertising, or designing the logo and the graphic design and a portfolio of stuff that people will see when they walk in the shop. And then you need somebody else who understands what vegetarians and vegans like to eat when they come to a coffee shop, because you might have some of those coming along at some point. You're not enough on your own. None of us is. We need a diversity of gifts around us in order for the whole community to function well. It's true inside the church. It's true outside the church. 
We could extend that principle. It's also good in many contexts to see people with a diverse range of different experiences. A couple of examples. Uh, if you're a young couple and you're about to have your first baby, you're about to become a mum or a dad, and so you've read loads of books about parenting, well, good on you for reading those books, but nothing will prepare you for the experience like actually having the experience will do. If you're about to have your first baby, I suggest you go talk to somebody else who's already had one because that experience, albeit lived secondhand, will be tremendously valuable to you. We know the same sort of things are true in relation to the most intense experiences of life. Think of suffering. Um, there's a great deal that we can learn about suffering from reading about it in Scripture and elsewhere, but there's nothing quite like experiencing it firsthand, as many of you know to change your perspective on it. Your experience of that reality is tremendously formative. And so um, different people who bring different experiences to a particular domain, a particular problem, a particular issue, can contribute in all kinds of different ways, and that's good for the community as a whole. So diversity can be a wonderful, wonderful thing if it's understood in many different ways. But none of those ways is how critical theory understands diversity. Remember what critical theory says is important about life. What is it that defines you as a human being? It's actually not your gifts, it's not your experiences, it's not your abilities, it's not the things you've worked hard to cultivate. The thing that defines you as a human being is the collection of different intersecting identity factors that you bring with you, whether you're black or white, whether you're male or female, whether you're an immigrant or native born, and so on and so forth, multiplied endlessly through 10, 20, 30, 40, potentially limitless number of those polarities or spectra. What defines you as a human being is not the individual contribution you can make to anything or even who you are as an individual human being. The thing that is constitutive of your nature is the list of identity groups that you belong to. And so, accordingly, that's how critical theory understands diversity. When critical theory and when the workshops that you might get required to go to at work talk about diversity. They're not talking about, hey, on this team working for the coffee shop, we need to have people who are great at making coffee and people who can do the marketing and people who can do the legal stuff. What they're actually saying is we need people with a diverse range of being on the oppressed side of all those identity polarities or identity domains. Remember Kimberly Crenshaw's insistence pushing back ever so slightly against postmodernism when she said that the only thing that is objectively real in human experience is oppression. So what that means is that the diversity that is value, valuable is a diverse range of ways in which a group of people can credibly claim to be oppressed in relation to all those identity factors. Black, female, immigrants and so on. That's what matters. And so when critical theory wants to create diversity, what it actually wants to do is to have a group of people who are all committed to critical theory, but in different ways embody different uh, 
points on those spectra of oppressed groups. That's all the more the case, remember, because of critical theories truly postmodern insistence that everything is about power dynamics within relationships. At this point, critical theory is right in line with classic Foucauldian postmodernism. Everything is about power dynamics between competing groups. Truth, if it does exist, which it probably doesn't, is not something that can be accessed. Everything in human life and human experiences is about power dynamics between groups. And therefore, critical theory takes that insight and insists that everything that human beings do must be about pursuing social justice for the oppressed. And social justice must be defined in this way by having in every domain those diverse range of different oppressed identity groups functioning. So, classic example of this, you thought your organisation was about making coffee, didn't you? Yeah, well, you work for Starbucks, so more fool you for thinking that that's a coffee shop. It used to be a coffee shop. Now, what it actually is, is an agency which seeks to pursue social justice. And the framework within which it does that is making and selling coffee and various other things. But actually what it's about is social justice, which is why they closed how many thousand of its stores, was it, a few months ago, in order to put all of their staff through a day's diversity awareness training. That's what the organisation is about. You thought you were working for an airline. Wrong. If this ideology gets a hold of your airline, you are no longer about flying people from A to B in the most comfort, cheaply as possible, quickly as possible. That's incidental to your mission in life which is about pursuing social justice in that domain, where social justice is defined in the terms I've indicated. What that means, of course, is that anybody who doesn't buy into the ideology must be driven out. It's pure and simple, because they don't contribute to the aims of the organisation anymore. Can you start to see how deep-rooted and far-reaching this ideology is? It doesn't simply sit alongside the aims of any individual or group of people or organisation. It subverts and overthrows it. And the way that people are driven out to create this putative, uh, diverse environment is, in almost Orwellian terms, inclusion. We'll look at that in the next video. Inclusion is the way that the bureaucrats who were installed because of their advocacy of critical theory work to make this workplace actually politically monochrome because they're politically committed entirely to this ideology. Okay, let's take a look at the second of these three pillars of social justice according to critical theory. Inclusivity or inclusion, the terms are used uh, to mean roughly the same thing in this context. We looked previously at the first pillar, diversity, and one of the things we noticed, if you remember, was that uh, the term means something radically different in critical theory from what you might expect it means. And this is something which deceives many people, including many Christians, into buying into this ideology or movements influenced by it, because what people think they're getting is a version of diversity that they could defend biblically. Or so it is also here. People think they're buying into a version of inclusivity or inclusion which could be defended biblically, and it's important to understand that it can't. 
But a biblical understanding of inclusivity is radically different from a critical theoretic understanding of the same term. Just think about the difference. Think for a second about all the ways in which you'd want to be inclusive. There are many ways, aren't there, in which inclusivity or inclusion is a Christian virtue. We'd want our church to be as inclusive as Jesus is in all the ways that Jesus is, wouldn't we? Jesus wouldn't, we want to turn away somebody whom Jesus would welcome. Jesus would welcome anybody from whatever background who repented and trusted in him. And we want to do the same. We want to make sure that people didn't feel excluded if they repented and trusted in Christ just because of the background they were from. That's obviously a Christian form of inclusion, inclusion or inclusivity. And more than that, actually, Jesus welcomes people, albeit in a slightly different way, who don't, or don't yet, repent and trust in him. And we want to do the same in the sense that if you've got somebody who's not a believer but is kind of interested in finding out what we believe, wouldn't we want to welcome them into our church in the sort of way that Jesus would? Not pretending that they're a Christian or anything childish and immature like that, but nonetheless making them feel welcome, albeit as somebody who doesn't believe in Christ, but welcome to be a part of our community in the ways that is appropriate for somebody who's not a believer. And you do the same thing, actually, we do the same thing automatically in our families and as individuals all the time. We want to be welcoming people uh, to folks in our workplaces or neighbours on our street who may or may not be Christians, but we don't want to be kind of cutting ourselves off from people socially uh, in every respect simply because of what they believe. There are many contexts, albeit not every context, but there are many contexts in which we want to be as welcoming as we possibly can to people who may be radically different from us in all kinds of ways, including the most profound aspects of what they believe. We want to be inclusive and welcoming people generally. And you've done this, I know. You do this all the time. You, you make the effort to get to know folks at work who aren't believers. You might have your neighbours around for dinner, even though they're not Christians. And you want to get to know them a little bit and give them, give them, a, chance, give them a chance to share your life and to share their life with them. But that's not how critical theory understands inclusivity. Critical theory understands inclusivity like this. A place or a space or an environment is inclusive when nobody from an oppressed or marginalized group feels or could feel any sense of unease or discomfort about anything that somebody else has done or said. More than that, in order to be an inclusive space, it needs to be the case that nobody could even imagine somebody from an oppressed or marginalized group feeling any degree of discomfort or unsettlement at all because of something that somebody has said or done. That's what makes an inclusive space or an inclusive environment according to critical theory. Now, even that, on the face of it, might, I'm not saying would, but it might sound just about defensible. But once I explain how this is achieved, that will clarify for you what this actually means. And we'll pretty soon see, once again, that description, again at this point, is critique. There are basically two steps to creating an inclusive space in critical theory. The first step is to dramatically increase everybody's sensitivity to perceived slights 
or criticisms or insults. You remember back a few years ago, the concept of microaggressions started to gain currency. This is where the topic of microaggressions fits into critical theory. A microaggression is a tiny, insignificant, trivial insult or perceived criticism or slight, which, according to the theory, uh, is nonetheless significant, perhaps because it combines with other microaggressions to make something a bit bigger, or perhaps because just if I feel it's significant, it just is significant. So the tiniest little thing I'm allowed to take as an insult, that's an aggression, a microaggression, and that makes me feel uncomfortable, and it means that space in which I experience it is not inclusive. Now, it doesn't need to be the case that I feel it. It could be the case that I think that somebody else might feel it. If I could imagine that, let's say, a woman or a black person might be offended by something that you've said, this space is no longer inclusive. It doesn't matter how significant it is, it could be completely trivial. In fact, it might not even be intentional. You might not even be intending to be insulting. But if I think that something that you've said might be heard by somebody else as insulting or critical, that's a microaggression against that imagined person, and that makes this space non-inclusive. Now, this is one way, it's a very subtle way, actually, in which this movement spreads. Critical theory does not spread through mainstream populations by people reading, reading vast, lengthy treatises on critical theory and Herbert Marcuse and the works of Foucault and so on. People don't do that. What people do is they get into a workplace environment and they're encouraged by the way that people interact to imagine that tiny little insults are really significant and nobody wants to appear insensitive. So everyone, if one person reacts in a way which, oh, don't you think that might be a little bit racist, then for you to say, that'd be ridiculous, how could it possibly be? Well, the idea is that you'd feel uncomfortable saying that. So we kind of, everyone carries everyone else along on a wave of increasing heightened hypersensitivity to even the most trivial, unintentional insults, which aren't even directed towards you, they're directed towards somebody else. If we can increase our sensitivity to those insults, that's the first step. And the second step, then, is to take action to prevent that happening. This action could take one of two or three forms. The first would be simply restricted speech. You're not allowed to say that, and then here comes a long, increasing and growing list of things which I might imagine somebody else gets offended by. Be careful of the person who volunteers to write the speech code or the code of conduct or the rules of engagement for your Slack channel or whatever it is at work. Because if that person has been influenced by critical theory, then what you're going to get is a growing list of entirely innocuous things that you're not allowed to say anymore because your speech is being restricted. This is the reason why some realtors no longer talk about master bedrooms. I'm serious. Some realtors will no longer talk about master bedrooms when they're listing the details of a house because master evokes slave and the idea of slavery, they say, would be insulting and hurtful and oppressive to some people. Now, clearly, the experience of being oppressed as a slave is extremely painful and entails a vast amount of suffering. But there is all the world of difference between that experience of being actually abused as a slave and reading a real estate listing about a master bedroom and the number of square feet it comprises. 
But what critical theory does in its pursuit of inclusivity is teach people to be hypersensitive to these tiny perceived insults and then restrict people's speech in order to create spaces that are free of those insults. But restricting speech is only one part of step two. Step two also includes uh, compelling people's speech. You notice if you uh, spend any time, which I'm not particularly advocating, but you might do on Twitter in particular, that in recent months, celebrities have been criticised in some instances for not being vocal enough in their support of, let's say, Black Lives Matter. Well, just think about that for a second. Somebody's being criticised for something that they didn't say. The movement is seeking to compel people to speak in certain ways. You're in trouble if you don't say Black Lives Matter, for example. The protests that I've referred to in the past at the restaurant in uh, Washington, D.C., I think, if I recall correctly, where the protesters were insisting that these restaurant goers raise the fist in support of BLM are a case in point. It's compelled speech. We want to make this space safe. It's not safe unless you express yourself in this way. This is why every company, bank, ice cream manufacturer, toy company, every company now has a public statement on social justice. You, I, I received an email just a couple of minutes ago from somebody who showed me something that came from American Express, I believe, um, which was basically a piece of social justice advocacy. You thought that was a credit card company. Wrong. Uh, every company now feels this compulsion to express its support for social justice as defined by uh, the woke warriors, advocates of critical theory, um, because they fear, in effect, economic reprisals if they do not. Compelled speech. Create a safe space. Be inclusive. Restricted speech, compelled speech, and thirdly and finally, segregation. It may not be enough to stop you from speaking or even to require you to speak it's possible that the mere fact of your presence in a certain place may make somebody else feel uncomfortable do you remember a few uh, months ago in i believe it was temper arizona where those police officers were asked to leave starbucks because they were making the customers feel uncomfortable they were asked by the staff member who knew them personally, at least one of the officers personally, to leave for that reason. Because, quote, the customer who complained didn't feel safe. Now just think about what's entailed by that. A staff member will ask a police officer whom they know personally, because they're a frequent visitor, to leave because their presence makes somebody else feel uncomfortable. The space is not in inclusive enough. And so people have to be excluded physically from it, segregated. Now, in that instance, mercifully, afterwards, Starbucks backed down and apologised, though, well, watch this space to see uh, if the next time that happens in six months or a year's time, the apology is so quickly forthcoming. But this takes us back to the point I hinted at right at the end of the previous video. How do you make your place, your space, your place of work, perhaps, uh, diverse in the way that it's understood by critical theory? The answer is in this Orwellian twist on what words actually mean by making it inclusive. You make it inclusive by increasing everybody's sensitivity to viewpoints which they might imagine somebody else gets offended by, then restricting people's speech, 
compelling them to speak in certain ways and if that's not enough which it probably won't be in the long run excluding them so you need to be fired from the organization because people don't feel safe around you in fact even that may not be enough and the next of the three pillars of social justice according to critical theory will highlight the final uh, step in the process or piece in the jigsaw puzzle necessary to create the social justice that critical theory envisages okay so we've looked at diversity we've looked at inclusion or inclusivity we now need to look at the third of the three pillars of social justice as understood by critical theory i'm talking about equity now, we already noted that the definitions of terms here are very slippery, which can be misleading for people who get duped into imagining that this ideology is offering something good or even Christian because the terms look appealing on the surface. Well, that's even more so the case here. And in part, that's because the issue is complicated by the way the terms are used. Sometimes the term equity is used by advocates of critical theory in a way that's roughly interchangeable with equality. So the term equity and equality mean the same thing. Sometimes, however, they're sharply distinguished so that equity is the critical theory doctrine, whereas equality is the classic doctrine of equality, which is something like what we ought to be aiming for. So just to try and get things as clear as I can, let me describe uh, and invite you to consider some forms of, let's call it equality, which we might think are a really good idea as Christians. And then we'll contrast that with the critical theory uh, vision of the same doctrine and then draw a couple of uh, connections to other aspects of critical theory that will help make sense of it. First then, let's just think, what kinds of equality would be a good thing? As Christians, what would we... Give us, let's think of an example or two of where equality would be good. Well, how about equality before the law? Scripture says we don't want to be partial to the poor or to the rich. You wouldn't want the outcome of a legal process in, to depend on whether somebody was wealthy or poor. And you certainly wouldn't want the length of their sentence to depend on, let's say, whether they're black or white. That would be an injustice. That would be discrimination. And equality, in that sense, is the opposite of discrimination. You want the process to be blind to wealth and skin colour. A colourblind legal system is a just uh, legal system because it represents equal outcomes for equal crimes, irrespective of what identity group somebody belongs to. Think of another example. Imagine in a workplace where there's a job on offer or uh, promotion available. Who should get the job or who should get the promotion? Well, the answer is whoever is best equipped for the job, whoever is most competent in that particular domain and of course the relevant factors will vary depending on what the job is the requirements for somebody who works in a coffee shop or works in the police service or works on an oil rig are all very different from each other and so you'd be entitled to, to in a sense discriminate between people on the basis of their competence in those domains but it would be an unjust thing to discriminate on the basis of things that are irrelevant to their performance of that job so you'd have to try and work out okay what factors are really significant and relevant to being a police officer working on an oil rig and so on uh, like knowing something about oil and oil rigs would be a good thing for somebody who's working in that kind of context and you wouldn't be right to discriminate on the basis of irrelevant factors like whether the person was black or white 
So a just society, again, would be one in which, in that case, uh, somebody's professional advancement depended only on their competence and not on the identity groups that they belong to. Now, how does critical theory understand its corresponding concept of equity? The answer is exactly the opposite. For critical theory, equity is achieved when the process proceeds in order to generate equality of outcome, plus a little bit extra, in fact, to compensate for alleged historic injustices, and competence doesn't matter at all. Let me explain how this would operate in practice. The theory goes like this. If you've got a population, imagine somebody who's an advocate of critical theory looking at a certain town, a city like Fort Worth, and saying, well, in this city, there are such and such a percentage of white and black and Hispanic people. Imagine they broke down the society in that way. Now I'd object to that way of characterizing the, the society as though that's relevant, but imagine that they did. What they then say is, if you've got a large company, well, the employees in this company should uh, represent in those percentages, roughly speaking, the percentages of the people in the mainstream population. If it's 50% white in the main population, then it should be 50% white in the company, 30% black and so on, it should be 30% black in the company. And therefore your hiring process must be designed to produce those equal outcomes. It mustn't be designed to take into account people's competence and ignore the, the identity group that they belong to. Quite the contrary. It must be designed to take into account only the identity factors which will serve to produce equal outcomes at the end of the process. You can see how it's actually the mirror image of equality in the classic sense. With equality, the thing that matters is your competence and your identity group is irrelevant. With equity, as critical theory imagines it, the thing that matters is your identity group and your competence is irrelevant. Now this is connected to a couple of other fundamental pillars of um, critical theory, and we've hinted at some of these before. But the first is the doctrine of systemic racism, or more broadly, if you're not just thinking about race, systemic bias. But mostly the conversation takes place in this context about uh, race, and sometimes it's about male-female sex, and therefore systemic racism, systemic sexism are the terms that often get used. But let's imagine we stick with the example of racism for a moment. The theory goes that um, all societies are racist. Remember, that's one of the axioms of critical theory. Racism is the normal state of human society. It's not an aberration, it's just the way things are. And therefore, if there are equal, sorry, if there are unequal outcomes in any domain, the reason why there are unequal outcomes is because of racism. After all, the only thing that matters about an individual is not their competence or who they are, it's which groups they're members of. And therefore, those th factors are determinative of their being. So if there are more uh, white people in a particular company as a proportion than there are in the general population, that must be because of racism. 
Now, some of the racism might be identifiable. It might be in the institutional structures, in which case it's institutional racism, or it might be individual people behaving in a racist way, in which case it's uh, individual racism, I guess, is what you'd call it. But what about if you can't identify the, the reasons why this organization seems to have a higher proportion of one group of people than another? You're not allowed to say it's because of the competence of the individuals concerned. The answer must be racism. And we'll call that systemic racism. Systemic racism, in other words, is what one commentator has called the racism of the gaps. The racism that critical theory insists must be there to explain any proportional differences in outcomes for different identity groups. So if there's a difference in outcome for identity groups, because all of life is about pursuing this definition of social justice, we must design the process in order to eliminate those differences in outcome and sideline competence. It actually means you end up sidelining personal choice. Because let's just imagine there are some professions where it just turns out that God has made women and men, for example, different so that more men want to be IT engineers and more women want to enter nursing, say. And that's just true, actually, both theologically, you can argue for that, and also experientially, you can see it in practice, but leave that to one side for a second, well, critical theory would say you're not allowed to take into account those factors. If there's a difference, let's say, in the gender balance in a particular workplace, it must be because of discrimination, it must be because of racism, and if you can't see it, it's still there. We just call it systemic racism. Now, I mentioned a minute or two ago that just getting the balance right isn't quite enough for critical theory. Uh, this is where the doctrine of reparations comes in. Reparations is the attempt to not just create equality in the present, or rather create equity in the present, but to make up for alleged historic lack of equity or discrimination. So let's suppose it was the case that in the past a certain identity group was discriminated against. And let's imagine for a second that that actually was the case. And we can all imagine quite easily contexts in which discrimination took place in the past. Let's imagine that that happened. Well, critical theory says it's not enough just to get the balance right now. If a certain identity group is suffering in a certain domain, perhaps in a certain field of employment or in college admissions, for example, uh, because of what well, the insistence would be, it's racism or sexism or some other kind of bias, what we must do is reset the balance and push it over a little bit. So we must discriminate positively in favour of oppressed groups. So where this is going to end us, the pursuit of equality will reintroduce discrimination on the basis of identity and competence or even what people want to do with their lives will be pushed to the side in the pursuit of this all-embracive ideology that insists on equity defined in this way. That the outcome in every domain of life must be such as to meet and then push a little bit past equality in terms of representing the proportions of different identity groups in the mainstream population. And remember, critical theory is this all-embracive philosophy of life. Everything is about the pursuit of social justice in this sense. 
And so if this ideology spreads and continues to have the influence it has, then we can expect to see that this will become actually the de facto aim of more and more institutions in government, in higher education, indeed in the corporate sector and elsewhere. If that's not enough reason to be praying about this situation, I'm not sure what would be. That plus all of the stuff we've talked about in these previous few uh, devotions. I confess that at times this uh, has felt a little bit like, I guess what it feels like when you're unblocking a particularly smelly drain. You know, there's a whole bunch of gunk down there that you've got to clear out, but it's not a particularly pleasant experience doing so. I'm sure at times that this series of devotions has been a little trying for you all as well. And I'm kind of sorry about that in the sense that I don't want to make your lives miserable. But just as we reflected right back at the beginning, uh, Jude, the Lord's brother, realized that at times he had to address unpleasant and uncomfortable topics in order to get to grips with toxic ideologies in the world around him and i guess we have to do the same so i hope this devotion and the ones before it has been helpful in helping you get to grips with this stuff i'm looking forward to getting back onto more immediately edifying subjects in the near-term future but i'm afraid this ideology is with us to stay for a while until in god's good providence it like every other uh, ideology opposed to Christ is overthrown and for that we should pray. I'll leave you with that and I'm looking forward to seeing you all very soon. Bye for now.